Hello, this is Kate Bale Griffiths, and I will be having a conversation with Sondos and I for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It's July 1st, 2020, and this is being recorded at the Gentry in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Okay, so, um, are we ready to rock and roll? Yeah. Okay, wonderful. And so, yeah, um, just the first few questions I have for you are kind of the, uh, you know, the story of your life. So do you want to tell me your name and age? Yes. Um, I'm Sandos and I, um, most people call me Sandy. Um, I'm 23 years old. I go by she, her pronouns. I live in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Um, how would you describe your gender if someone asked you? Um, I generally describe myself as a transgender woman, um, and yeah, there's of course flavors of, of non-binariness in there, but I mostly stick to a, a, a fairly binary identification of it. When and where were you born? Um, I was born in, uh, in 1997, um... My mom was um, doing her doctorate at UNC Chapel Hill, um, and so she, I was born, I think, right before she finished that up, and we moved to Maryland, where I grew up. Um, do you want to tell me about a kind of, like, early experience you had, either with the trans community, whatever that may mean to you, um, or about, and or about when the first time you ever heard of or thought of the concept of transness? The first time I... So the first time I was exposed to it um, from an outside interlocutor, um, this is, uh, oh, I haven't thought about this actually in quite a while. Um, I mean, I'm sure I, I saw some like man in a dress gags before this as everyone does, but um, I remember specifically um, being in high school um, and being an absolute loser who would sometimes, you know, for fun, like, read the dictionary, right? Just, like, pick a random page and say, like, ah, what are some words, right? Um, and I found the word cissexual, um, which, of course, like, I don't, I don't know the last time I've heard anyone even use that word. It, it's cisgender or transsexual, right? Um, cissexual, I feel like I, I never even hear, but um, that was a word that was in this dictionary that I had. Um, and I remember thinking it was hilarious. And I, I, this is like, this is so, so like, you know, the problematic past, which I'm sure we're going to get into as this goes on. But um, I remember like pulling it out on, on friends of mine and being like, hey, are you cissexual? And then being like, gross, what is that? Some new kind of gay I haven't heard of? And I'm like, ah, you're not cissexual, so that means you're actually transsexual. <laughs> like, <laughs> I got you. Which <laughs> like, <laughs> is, yeah, it's... Uh. So that's like the first time you... What did you think about it, though? Like, did you have any internal thoughts about it, or you just were... 
I didn't think about it at all as a thing a, um, a person could be. Um, I think my first real exposures to it being a person could be um, came a few years later when I was maybe 14 or 15 um, and I became yeah around that time I, I got very much into tumblr feminism um, and also at the time I became very active um, in nerd fighters of the greater DC area and I guess I, I should explain that because that is the the nerd fighters is the self uh, chosen demonym of the John and Hank Green Vlog Brothers fandom, um, which I can I can trust whatever future listener this did to Google if you want to know more. <laughs> um, so I was I was very active in nerd fighters of the greater DC area, and there were there were a couple of trans people in that group um, who I became very close to. And so I think that's my first direct contact with it. Tell me a little bit about your like childhood and family background. Um, family background. Um, so I come from a, a mixed family in a, in a very broad sense, very much like, um, sort of a poster child for the American melting pot of a family. Um, my mom is a white Ashkenazi Jew um, who grew up in Israel um, and identifies as Israeli, although I don't put, I don't cite Israeli as part of my own national identity, whatever even a national identity is. I don't, I don't cite it for, um, yeah, some complicated reasons. Um, but so my, my mom is, is a white Ashkenazi Jew, grew up in Israel, um, well-educated, um, and, um, ended up through, as I mentioned, through, um, uh, the University of North Carolina, um, pursuing a doctorate in, um, in, I believe, urban planning and sort of regional planning in quote-unquote developing countries. And she did her dissertation, uh, her dissertation research in, um, in Ghana, in, um, Tamale, which was, um, sort of a rural, uh, suburb area of, I want to say, Komasi. Um, and she met my dad there. Um, she had a rental car there, and my dad was um, an auto mechanic working on her rental car, which is a, like a story and a half, of course. Um, and so my dad um, is Ghanaian um, of the Dagomba tribe, and um, he was uh, he was Muslim, um, and much, much more of a working class background and, you know, no 
no real um, sort of formal education past um, past the high school level, and um, you know, in a kind of kind of almost the the stereotypical story, like the way the way a lot of dads tend to sort of exaggerate the hardships of their actually probably actually hard lives, but they tend to exaggerate the hardships in certain ways. Um, I think a lot of those were actually true about him, sort of in that context of, you know, working in the, uh, in the rice factory, processing rice at the age of 12 to help support his family and, and all of that. Um, so my parents married, um, um, my mom already had a child at this point, um, from another man. She had decided previously that she wanted to be a, a single mother, um, and, um, yeah, so they got married, my mom, um, was finishing up her doctorate, um, they moved initially to Israel, um, and this is, um, you know, this is something I, I, I tell people when talking about Israel, is that my, you know, dark-skinned Muslim dad, um, experienced so much racism in Israel that, um, that my parents thought it a better decision to move to North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, um, I was born in North Carolina, um, when I was, like, two or so, right around the time my younger sister was born, uh, my mom got a job in D.C., um, doing, you know, sort of, uh, doing research work in, again, quote-unquote, developing countries. Um, and, um, and so I, I lived in, um, the, uh, fairly wealthy overall suburbs of, uh, Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, so that's a little bit of, of my family background, so again, I, I've, um, I mentioned them, but to lay it out very neatly, I have an older brother, um, from a, a different dad, and my younger sister as well. Um, uh, as far as what my actual childhood was like, um, messy in a lot of formative ways, as childhoods tend to be. Um, I guess the big things, um, the, the big points that I, that I sort of connect things to are, one, um, being sort of recognized and perceived as intelligent from a very early age. Um, and, of course, it's a, I know this is, like, this sort of open forum to talk about. It's, it's so weird to talk about this because, and, and there's some of this even recently in, in, like, internet discourse about, like, people talking about being gifted kids who now have all this trauma and, and, and so on. Um, but, yeah, that's, <laughs> um, definitely a real, a real part of my experience, um, and, 
and, and my socialization um, is very, very, very deeply conne um, connected with that. Um, you know, I was in an organization as a child um, called the, um, the Davidson Institute for Talent Development, um, which is um, Mensa, but only for kids and with a much higher cutoff. Um, so it's purely based on IQ testing and Mensa um, cuts off at the 98th percentile and this organization cuts off at the 99.9th percentile. Um, so, so really only for children who test extremely high on IQ tests and run by um, some sinister um, uh, software engineers who like Fuck. made, who made, yeah, right? <laughs> so, well, they, um, they, they made a lot of money making like educational computer games for kids. Right. Um, if, um, if you've ever seen like, like the, the Clue Finders games or the Jumpstart games, things that, um, got marketed a lot as these fun educational resources for children. Um, the people behind that are wealthy white donors to the Republican Party who have this organization. Um, I'm very disturbed by this for, Yeah, right? Right? Oh my god, no, like, there were NDAs involved. Um, um, there were NDAs involved around, um, we would have these, like, um, these conferences, essentially, periodically. Um, and uh, we had to sign NDAs to, like, not tell people where the conference was going to be because of course they were also there's also the concern of like how much are like you know real cheap um news publications gonna go nuts about like hey all of these like incredibly quote-unquote intelligent children are all going to be in one place in our city and in this city and on these dates this is crazy right um and so wanting to avoid the the press of that um so, yeah, so being perceived as, as intelligent was very, very much a part of my childhood in a lot of ways. Um, the most significant even part of that even being that I skipped some grades. Um, I first, um, I skipped kindergarten, sort of. I'll come back to that in a minute, actually, because I think it's very interesting. Um, but... Um, the really big ones being, um, being, um, I skipped from fifth grade to eighth grade. Um, and actually at the end of fifth grade, I essentially, I was given a choice to go to eighth grade at the normal middle school or go to sixth grade with my peers, with many of my peers at the like sort of gifted middle school, right, um, that I'd be bust further away from the, the magnet school, um, and I chose to skip directly from there to, from fifth grade to eighth grade, and so, um, in eighth grade, I was ten, and so anytime I'm talking about my, my childhood experiences and all this, anytime I talk about times of my life in school, it's, it's, I think, bears keeping in mind that my high school years were age um, 11 to 14, and my undergrad years were age 
um, 15 to 18. Um, Did they, so just to roll back one second, for this super secret Marvel comic super smart kids club thing like one how did they find you and two did they tell you your 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 iq um i definitely was told my iq at a certain point in time all right so um yeah so i just asked you about that did they how did you find this this secret group or how do they find you and so um this is an extremely like this is an extremely early internet actually part of this um my mom found out about it from some of her internet friends um her internet friends being um the email list serve she was on for um people whose babies were um due in june of 1997 um she's still on that email list and like keeps up with a lot of those people whose babies were due in in june of 1997 um and uh, so that's how she knew of it because i think one of them um was part of it um the organization itself didn't do the IQ testing. We, like, had to find a third-party IQ testing service um, and send them my results. Um, I think I was... I think I did at one point know what the actual numerical result of the IQ test was, um, but I've since um, forgotten. Because, um, I, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't really want to know, and I don't, I don't care. Um... And, of course, even the contradiction in all of this is the ways that I was, at the same time, profoundly a dumbass. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned wanting to come back to the story of skipping um, kindergarten, sort of. It was closer to doing half of the year in kindergarten than doing half of the year in first grade. Um, and part of that included... I was supposed to write a letter to the principal saying, I'm too smart for kindergarten. Put me in, in first grade. Um, and the fact of me having written that letter was supposed to be proof of that, right? Because how many, how many kindergartners are going to do that? Um, which is crazy in, in of itself. But then um, I remember I watched an episode of Arthur. Um, this is this is great. This is my first experience with procrastination. Um, I remember watching an episode of Arthur um, where Arthur first procrastinates on writing an essay um, and then has to actually write the essay. And I saw the animation of him writing the essay. And in the animation, it like it's him on the screen, like just drawing squiggles, right? You can't see him drawing any actual words. You just see squiggles appearing on the page. Um, and at that point, um, having myself procrastinated on writing this letter, um, to the principal, um, I tried, um, I, I, I thought, oh, that must be what cursive is. I thought... My, my understanding of cursive at, at this point in my life, at the age of, of five, is cursive is 
when you write in squiggles and you don't even have to really think about what you're writing um and it's then the squiggles are then going to be intelligible as meaningful and so i literally just like drew squiggles it like like looked like sine waves like um i literally just put squiggles on this piece of paper and was like look i did it um and then my uh my dad made me do it again um right um which is very illustrative at um at proving that like all of the ways in which how in which my interfacing with uh the world of education um is deeply fucking strange and ridiculous and so so contradictory um and has such this warped idea or this 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 bizarre idea of what the fuck intelligence or smartness even is um and then part of and then that that also actually segues very nicely into to go a couple of questions back to the question of um what was my childhood like um, that story also segues very nicely to the other very formative part of it was, um, abuse at the hands of my dad, right? And this, uh, physical abuse at the hands of my dad, um, and, um, specifically, you know, cause there, there are, there are some of the abuse stories of this, um, uh, of there are some stories of you know that kind of parental physical abuse that are at least more obviously sort of very arbitrary you know it's not connected to anything you did it's just like this guy's an asshole and he's hitting his kid um this was more of the the type of narrative that um fits in line with like it was it was always specifically punitive there was always something specific that I had done wrong um, to go with it. Um, and, and of course, you know, that story is one of the earlier times I remember my dad hitting me, um, but it, you know, it was a, a, a fairly common occurrence. And what did your mom, like, say about that? Did she see that as, like, legitimate punishment, or did she? My mom, I've talked about this with her at quite a bit at length. I have currently a working relationship with her and pretty much no relationship at all with my dad. Um, my mom, she, it's very weird because she claims to have done the research on the literature of it, you know, because again, she's, you know, she's a social scientist, right? Um, by profession. Um, what's her discipline? Um, her, her degree is in, in, um, like urban and regional planning. Um, but, um, her, the work she does and was doing, um, there's a lot of, a lot of sort of statistical work in, um, things like, 
um, family planning and, and, and reproductive stuff and, and disease stuff um, in developing countries. Um, and and so she she thinks sort of as uh, with some sort of social scientist mindset and she claims to have done the research about this very thoroughly and that the research she looked at was mixed on whether or not this was okay to do um and and so she she always allowed it to happen um she always allowed it to happen and she I I've spoken about it with her since and I've said, you know, I've I myself have looked into the literature that existed at that point in time and that literature is pretty conclusive that it's a bad idea. Um and and so so that was part of it. Um and you know she she also on the other hand also never did it herself. Mm. Um she I think she she saw that it was in a certain kind of way sometimes effective at um at behavioral at at some kind of ex, um behavioral control um, specifically, you know, me and my, my younger sister had a lot of anger management problems, um, not unrelated, um, and that, um, this sort of punishment was very, or what, you know, sort of was effective at interrupting tantrums when we were having them, um, and sort of stopping the tantrum. Um, she only ever did it herself once. Um, to me at least, I, I, I can't speak about my sister, um, she only ever did it, um, to me once, and retrospectively it's, like, so obvious how really deeply uncomfortable she felt doing it, um, so that's, that's part of how, how she felt about it, um, part of how she felt about it as well, um, part of how she felt about it as well was, um, in situations where my dad wasn't around, using my brother as uh, as an enforcer, my older brother, four years older, um, and who had behavioral problems of his own, but not the type that me and my and my sister had, um, and he he wouldn't be like assigned to like hit us. He would be assigned to make sure we go to our rooms and are in timeout by any means necessary. Um, so my dad was, uh, I, I guess my, my, my dad was sort of the judge, jury, executioner, and my, my brother was the beat cop. Um, if I'm gonna make that analogy, um, um, and something else I think to mention was sort of part of how my mom justified this, um, 
is, you know, the racial aspect of it. Um, you know, in absolute, in, you know, in speaking to her since, an absolute part of how she, she justified it to herself um, was this idea that it's quote-unquote African discipline um, is, and I, I can see you know, my, my lovely interviewer who has it's spent quite a bit of time about... in, in various parts of Africa doing um, various kinds of anthropological work. I can see, see, uh, see Kate um, grimacing here at, at that. Um, yes, yeah, so, so my, my, mom, my mom would make this sort of appeal to it being African discipline um, and even to compare it to um, compare the things my dad would do to things his dad did to him of a which were were much more extreme um you know his I've, I've heard of his dad like um locking him in the outhouse overnight right um and in sort of like like standing up in the in the outhouse and that sort of um as uh like working like like um like the chokey in in matilda um as as that you know much much more extreme kind of of you know i would i would call that torture right um absolutely it's torture yeah that's that's torture um if you can't if if it's violating geneva conventions to do this to prisoners of war why would you do it to your fucking kid <laughs> um jesus um yeah i mean that's a lot of things, and I know it's sort of my job and the style of this project to say, for me to remain as sort of neutral and not talking about myself as possible, but I think it's worth just for listeners of this interview to know that like, um, some of that part of that story I know, but there's a lot of similarities I guess between your childhood and my life that I wasn't totally aware of that you know, exists, and it's like drawing, it's certainly making me feel certain kinds of ways, but um, uh, I think we talked about, a little bit about some of that, but some of that I didn't fully know before now. So that's sort of interesting because just because I also am a researcher who spent time in Africa and married somebody I met there and had a child. So um, and yeah, no, there's definitely <laughs> like the way like oh yeah, so I'm 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 being interviewed by my mom, right? Yeah. Um. <laughs> there's definitely some some uh, some some unavoidable kind of oh my god, we we've we've, we've both been spending a lot of time late for for context. We've both been spending a lot of time lately talking to a dear friend of ours in. Uh, a dear mutual friend of ours in Buffalo who's like very much into psychoanalysis and so I don't I've been like getting into it over over quarantine too I've been like getting into all this like Freud and Lacan stuff I'm like yes yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm signing up for the oral history project to get interviewed by my mom right? <laughs> yeah I just didn't realize that until right now I guess I would have if I had thought about it but um, I I wanted to interview you because I knew you would have interesting things to say and I like to hear interesting things but here we are. Um, what was I going to ask about this something? Uh, there was the next. There was the next part I was going to ask. Hold on. Oh, just are your parents still together? Um. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> um. Yeah. Um. 
So, they are still married. I have no idea what my dad feels about anything. My mom still um, claims to love him. Um, I can remember since since probably around the time I was eight or nine, um, my when I was around eight or nine, my dad started um, working a lot of night shifts, um, and at that point. Um, you know, because my mom is a light sleeper, he started, um, not going into the bed when he, uh, when he came home, um, in the middle of the night, but instead going, uh, to the sofa, and I just thought that was normal, a thing that all couples do when one of them works, um, odd hours, and the other works a nine-to-five, um... And this is, so my, my parents' bedroom was, was always in the basement, um, of, um, of a, I guess a three-story house, so it was always on the bottom, um, and the, the, the sofa was, was in the middle, um, and since then, my dad, I think, has moved, um, upstairs another floor, and is now living in what used to be my brother's room, um, so, it's, it's, they're still married. They still, they're. I think they're. I really think they're much more roommates at this point. Um, it's a weird thing to say about your parents. Um, but you know, and and part of um, you know, getting close, getting deeper towards my teenage years. Um, and my sister's teenage years. Um, both of us having uh very weird and volatile teenage years. Um. And a lot of things of that where, um, a lot of elements of that that my mom would just not tell my dad, um, because she knew that he would be very angry about it, um, and she also understood, uh, or at least she... She narrativized it as him having no cultural context to process it. Um, and so this has to do, um, you know, one such example of such, although there were other pretty, pretty major things that this happened with, um, but one very easy example of that is um, my gender um, and me transitioning and sort of coming out, um, and, and wanting to come out as, as something that, um, that she just didn't tell my dad. Um, and being an adult now who has, um, I'm not married, but I've been in um, a monogamous relationship for, um, going on five years and, um, have plans to continue that indefinitely, um, in something that could sensibly be called a marriage, um, and just the idea of, like, not telling my spouse 
that, like, just omitting it completely is, is baffling to me. Um, and, and things more troubling even than that, that it's like, that I can't imagine not telling my spouse. Um, yeah, so that's... So, kind of is the answer you, to that. Did you, I, wanted, I want to take a break soon, but I want us to finish this sort of portion of the interview before we do, which is, um, like, when did you stop living with your parents? At what age? Um, so, when I was 15, I started college. Um, and the college I went to... Um, so I grew up in Montgomery County, Maryland. I went to, um, a small liberal arts school in Frederick, Maryland. Um, it was about half an hour away. Um, and, um, Hood College. Um, and I initially, of course, you know, my, my mom for various, for very obvious reasons had, um, some reservations uh, about me being involved in in dormitory life. She had she had some very obvious anxieties, um, all of which turned out to be completely founded, um, <laughs> of course. Um, um, but so for my my freshman year. Um, I, I always lived on campus, um, but I would go home on weekends. Mm. Um, and how old were you? I was, yeah, 15 right. um, at, at the beginning of this. And then sort of over the next couple of years, um, I phased that out entirely um, and just lived on, on campus full time. Um, I graduated right before I turned 19, um, and I never moved back in with my parents, um, I just immediately from there, um, me and my partner, who, the, the one I mentioned that I'm still with, um, and the roommate, we just immediately got a place, and I entered the workforce at that point, um, and I've lived on my own, or lived um, outside of my parents' house since. All right, so let's take a break, and we'll come back in a bit. Okay, so we're back. Um, I wanted to ask you if you had ever been to Israel. Yes, so, okay, so first to, to clarify for the listeners, you know, having just taken a break um, over the break, um... Kate asked me that question, and I realized that the answer points to a third axis of thing of ways my childhood was weird. Besides, um, besides uh, physical abuse from my dad and being told I was smart a lot, um, and I, I realized there's a third axis that I completely forgot to mention. Um, and so that that question. Um, is really a segue into something not that related to it. Um, so the question, have I been to Israel? Yes. Um, I think three times, twice that I was old enough to remember. Um, and once that is especially of interest, when I was nine, shortly after I turned nine, um, 
Um, I went for a month um, and stayed with my grandmother in, um, I believe, Tel Aviv. And I, it was a, it was an extremely formative month for me, um, as a very, um, early experience with sexuality. Um, and... And this is, this is actually great, because this is super going to overall segue to actually talking about my gender. Um, I know it. Um, so, my knowledge of sexuality as a child, um, my mom, working for most of my childhood in, you know, in reproductive health, and she would talk all the time about, you know, um, how she didn't understand, like, how something she didn't understand in America is that people are like, so prudish about talking about sex, um, whereas um, Israel, um, which is sort of cl much closer to um, to Europe culturally, um, is like really, uh, it's like like super normal, right? He's talking about it very casually. Um, so I got from a very very early age, from the age of like three. Um, Three or four, I knew how sex worked um, as far as a procreative act. I, I had some gaps in my knowledge. Um, you know, one that I like to think about it is that I I understood that sort of the sexual act consisted of you, you put a penis inside a vagina, um, but the actual motion involved, I somehow got the impression that it was less in and out and more you put it in and then you kind of slide back and forth parallel to each other um and yeah so 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 it's weird that I, I i knew how sex worked but in some very very um weird ways also had no clue how sex worked um but you know i had this i had this um this month in Israel when I was nine. Before that, I had, I, I would remember trying to find out more about how sex worked at various points. Um, and, you know, as a child going on the internet, um, this being not necessarily pre-Google, but before the search engine became the sort of default standard of how one related to the internet um i would rather than googling sex i would do things like try to go to sex.com um which you know must be the website with knowledge about sex um and i had parental like blocks on um on content on my computer as a child um so, so of course, they would give me the block message, and I would, I would know nothing. Um, and then on this trip to Israel, um, I remember um, I, I, I can remember this image very clearly of seeing like, like the, um, 
like sort of the thumbnail cover images on um like a red box for porn basically kind of kind of machine um like porn video rental um machine um and um so i remember seeing that and um you know, having all sorts of strange feelings in my genitals, um, and that prompting me to, um, later on, when my, when my grandmother was out of the house at some point, um, uh, to, at my grandmother's house in Israel, um, try going to sex.com, um, and that being my enculturation, the, the, the real sort of beginnings of my, um, of my entering into the world of sex, the, the world of sex and knowledge about it, um, And that, um, that being something that I, um, then would sort of actively and regularly seek, um, and actually, you know, now that I remember it, it, the reason I hadn't looked for that before, I didn't have parental blocks in my computer at the time. I just never thought to, to try to find it before then, actually, now that, um... Because they weren't there when you got back? Hmm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Because now I'm realizing, wait, no, I, 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 they were not there when I got back. Um, precisely. Um... Yeah, and so that being, um, me beginning to regularly watch porn and masturbate, um, and that beginning when I was nine, um, and I, I... I'm shocked at myself for actually having not even thought to mention this earlier when, when asked about my, my defining things of my childhood. Um, cause that's definitely one that's hard to get away from. Um, and is very formative, uh, uh, proved to be very formative to, um, vast swaths of my, of my identity formation and, and personality formation and becoming an adult person. One second. Um, right as this, um, snafu that, that you were figuring out was going on, um, was right when I was, like, getting into something, um, and, whew, I just need a second to pivot over to this, <laughs> a completely different thing, um, right. okay, um, 
moving to New York City, uh, or, or sorry, being aware of New York City, um, I visited once. My mom would always, we, we'd go all, all the time to visit family in Boston, and my mom would avoid going through the New York area at all costs um, because she's allergic to city driving. Um, but um, I, I visited once um, when I was like seven or eight. Um, it was, you know, it was pretty uneventful. It was actually, um, to, it was visiting a acquaintance of mine from the, uh, super smart kid high test scores club, Marvel, like, <laughs> comic book, real, real strange organization. Um, I was visiting someone from that, um, and, um, uh, you know, I always did all the extremely, like, touristy New York things, or to the Statue of Liberty, you know, like, yes, as you do. Um, going into adulthood, I had no real impression of that. Um, I, when I was looking for grad schools, I knew I wanted to stay on the East Coast, and I ended up only applying to CUNY schools because I was mad late on all my deadlines, and the CUNY schools have late deadlines, <laughs> at, for master's programs at least. Um, and so, um, my first more substantial experience with New York was, um, making a day trip up here after I had gotten into grad school, um, and, um, sort of, I, I... I only got into one place, um, but I wanted to visit it anyway, um, and, um, a friend of mine who was in the exact same boat, um, uh, we had applied to the same two CUNY schools, and I got into one and he got into the other, and so we came up and we were gonna visit both, and, um, you know, I was gonna, you know, we were thinking about, like, do we like one of these better, do we want to both transfer to be at the same one, um, so, so visiting for that, um, and, and also meeting with people at, at the school, um, and I definitely took a liking to the city. I was, I was very unpleasant to be around on that trip in particular because I was really, really sick. I had, like, a really bad, like, head cold, and it was also, you know, the middle of summer, and I was, like, way too hot and way too sweaty, and I just felt like shit, um, and I'm, I'm awful when I'm sick, I'm, like, really miserable to be around when I'm sick, I'm extremely needy, um, and so, like, I was, I know I was terrible to be with, um, but I, I, I was fond of the city, um, yeah, and this is, um, I'm, I, I'm so over, like, the, um, my, my sister also lives in New York, and she's in, she, um, uh, lives in and goes to school here, and she is, like, a musical theater kid, and so she has, like, all of the fucking trappings of, like, the, like, you know, the, the Broadway, like, romanticization of New York, where anything can happen, right? Like, and it's, it's the most annoying shit. Right, uh, this romanticization of New York. But um, when me and 
and my and my partner and our friend um you know, got off the bus arriving in new york at like 5 a.m um you know we were in midtown um in in uh midtown by like penn station mm-hmm. um looking for somewhere where we could get breakfast um and i remember right across from madison square garden um we were waiting to cross the street um and the light was against us and this fucking guy pushes past us and is like what are you waiting for christmas and i'm like <laughs> okay <laughs> like like so now like, i know like okay this like this like romanticized ideal of like new yorkers like being like ah forget about it right like it's so goofy we know it's so goofy um but then it also happens sometimes and you're like shit what the hell like um yeah the uh the imaginary coincides too much with the symbolic it's like kind of uncanny um yeah it's, it's 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 really strange so that's that's my, um, my first impression of New York. Well, I guess I want to maybe get back into little stuff we were talking about earlier and get into the other parts of this interview that suggests us talking about your community, your identity, New York City, and then other systemic issues. But I feel like we've talked about all of those things a little bit in part so far, but, like, um, not to have too much of a leading question here, but, you know, historically, queer and trans people move to big cities and particularly to New York City or San Francisco as part of the goal is like to be part of a, a queer community or a gay community or a trans community but like a lot of what you've said so far is sort of about your own kind of experiences of communities and queer ones or not I and mean, we haven't actually talked about much queer community but um is that that is something that you found or your mom found like through the internet I guess I'm, I'm curious about the relationship between those two kinds of processes for you right so queer community um definitely so much of my my formative queer community was through the internet that's absolutely undeniable um i do have you know a lot of sort of historical um uh, experiences of in-person queer community very very weird um relationships to that um you know i because i to to sort of tie back to some sort of problematic past stuff um i mentioned at some point um i had like real, like, bordering on incel, sort of, like, real friend zone positions, um, and sort of sensibilities, um, from, you know, in much of high school and the first half of college. Did you think of um, yourself as, like, a straight man at that point? But that's the thing, is I didn't. <laughs> um, is, um, although I in practice, you know, turned my, my friends and frustrations, um, primarily at women, and I would even, like, get sort of upset when men showed interest in me, um, at the same time as that, um, 
you know, in high school, I joined the Gay Straight Alliance, um, and, um, and began to identify as pansexual, and absolutely came at that from, like, a, um, because at the same time as, as that, I also had this, like, real deep wannabe love everyone liberalism not even not even in a way of being sort of a hippie about it but being in a way of like just being really unformed and uninformed and just it never really crossing my mind that anything would be more complicated than that mm -hmm. um and what about your racial identity at that time like how did you think of it oh my what racial identity um well, I went to, so we, we have to talk a little bit about my high school too. So I, I, I went to a magnet high school um, as well. Um, this of course ties to the being told I was smart as a child a lot. <laughs> um, I went to this magnet high school and it was, um, so Montgomery County, Maryland is a very large county um, and parts of it, you know, it, it borders DC. And so parts of it are like very, very extremely wealthy suburbs. And parts of it um, are much more rural um, and and poor. And the whole premise of this high school was that it was the poorest, most rural high school in the county. And they decided to put the magnet program there. They, they were going to make a new magnet program, and that's where they decided to put it. Um... And they sort of thought of it as um, sort of investing in this community. And absolutely, um, it's crazy. Like, I, I haven't been there in quite a while, but I know how much that town has, like, suburbanized since they put the magnet program in the high school. Um, it was still a fairly new magnet program when I was, um, when I started going there. And... Um, so mostly the people for whom that was sort of their home school um, were poor, um, actually a fair amount of diversity, but, yeah, but mostly white. Um, and um, the, the people there for the magnet program were, were almost uniformly white and East Asian, um, and from richer parts of the county. Um, and, um, and so that's, that's sort of the, the context of that. And, um, with that context established, um, to, to answer the question about my, my racial identity there, um, I hadn't thought very much about my racial identity before that, um, but that, um, at that point, um, I very much had Oreo assigned to me. Um, yes, I was, I was very, I was very much an, an Oreo, um, and sort of halfway rejected it and half leaned in, um, and it, it gets towards a part of my life where I was very explicitly anti-black racist 
right? Um, I had, I mean, racist broadly speaking. I was a very edgy kid. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I for, a, for a good while, for like a couple of years, I had that god-awful Chris Rock black people versus n-words bit memorized i could recite it to you verbatim right um and you know even now i i i say that and i like i can't i i'm black i say i say the n-word all the time in recounting that memory i feel so like so embarrassed and like so much cringe i can't even bring myself to say the n-word in the context of that um because of what it is um and and so that's the racial identity and then sort of forming my my some kind of identify uh, identification with queerness at the same time um and of course, I was a fucking loser um, all through this, too, and so there's parts of those, that, that, that those things relate to each other. Um, I remember getting, getting bullied in high school, and this is actually something I, I, I forget about for long stretches and remember every so often, and then I'm like, oh boy, that was fucked. Um, and it's a very specific memory, um, that ties into almost everything we've talked about so far, um, and one, it was, I remember one bully in particular, and he was someone who was, who was, um, sort of from the local community, um, and he was sort of a jock, right, as jocks and nerds go um and um and like our lockers were next to each other so we were always next to each other in in gym class and i was sort of public you know i i i was very shamelessly public um about my identification with with queerness and sort of about being pansexual as i identified at the time um and I remember times where this guy was, you know, was like physically attacking me, as bullies do. Um, and my defense against this, my, my strategy against this, was, um, and this, this is, okay, I have to just say it, so my, my, my strategy against, against this was to say, I am into men, and I am a masochist, I'm into BDSM, I'm a masochist, when you are bullying me in this way, right? When you are physically attacking me as a bully, I derive sexual pleasure from it, and that therefore, if you're doing it, that makes you gay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, 
holy <laughs> shit, there is so much to unpack in in the fact that this is a 13-year-old saying that. Oh, God. And to, like, a, to like an 18-year-old, probably. Or to, yeah, to, like, to like, like a, I think a, a 15 or 16-year-old. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, right? <laughs> it's, um... Yeah, um, oh boy, it's like, there's so much going on there. Well, you had a lot to do as a, as a very young person, actually. I mean, this is a social situation that seems hard to navigate as a 13-year-old, no matter how smart you are, so. Yeah, yeah, um, you know, I was, I, I was talking about this with my partner recently, because I, I put that memory in context with, um, a moment where, um, when, so my first, my first, um, my first actual sexual relationship was when I was, um, in college, um, right after I turned 16, which is the age of consent in Maryland, um, I started dating a 23-year-old divorcee. Um, An older woman. Yes. Um, although, turned out not a woman, and then before I figured out I might be not a man, um, uh, sort of would weaponize when I would talk about being into, into gender abolition. Um, this person would say, yeah, that's actually transphobic. And I'm like, no, it's not, but I can't say that because I'm not trans yet. Oh, it's, that's a whole, that's a whole nother interview and a half. <laughs> um, but, um, but at some point, um, my dad Finding in my room this person's underwear. What kind of underwear? Panties. Sexy um, panties or just regular panties? Uh, uh, sexy panties, okay. I think. I think they're kind of lacy in, in some capacity. Um, and... Um, my defense against that, uh, my, my, my sort of my way of absolving myself of the crime of being in a sexual relationship um, was to say, actually, those are mine because I like to masturbate with them. This is my normal harmless kink that I have. And that's like what I'm saying to my dad to try to get him not to like hit me after he finds out I'm having sex with somebody. Like... And it's so like. I'm, I'm guessing it didn't work. It 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 didn't work. Um, <laughs> it didn't work, and in fact, was a complication. Ended up being a sort of a complication in a later attempt to, um, to come out to him. Um, but yeah, that's. Um, so that's a, a thing. That's something I can leave there. Um, because I realized I've gotten sidetracked to this from, we've gotten sidetracked from sort of questions of queer community. Um, mm -hmm. and so I am, 
by the end of college, um, actually, so, um, a, a, a character here, um, is, uh, someone who was the president of my high school GSA, um, and who, um, also was told they were smart a lot as a child, uh, told he was smart a lot as a child, sorry, um, and, um, And, like, went, to, uh, um, actually, like, graduated after 10th grade and went to a, a college that caters to, to people starting college at a young age. Um, and then later on, um, I met again when he transferred to, um, the school where I was doing my undergrad. Um, and... That was my... I had introduction to queer community before then through nerd fighters of the greater DC area um, who were a bunch of fucking liberals. Oh my god, they're miserable. Um, and... And... Um, and so that that was a queer community for me for a good period of time, but then um, a much more meaningful um, and nuanced um, and sort of r more real in a weird sense that a queer community came to my life when that person um, transferred to my... Um, <coughs> transferred to my college and then introduced me to the local punk scene and got me into anarchy and that's actually so so then at that point queer community is um how i became radicalized um and he was for a while living at a uh a punk house uh punk like group house nearby that would have house shows and house events and that was like really 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 formative that was that was my first real exposure to non-normative ways of thinking about gender um and and it, it was it was very much mediated of course through the group house form and then i had a you know five trans person group house for a while in town after i graduated um and then when i moved to new york i was in a nine person group house um, you know, so there's tons of roommates, um, and, and that being sort of part of the exposure to queer community. Um, incidentally, that very same person, um, also at some point moved to New York, um, and is great, and he also, uh, his, his own gender stuff is complicated, uh, but he's like, like sort of a just sort of an omnipresence, um, by, basically by coincidence, um, but, and, and, uh, we don't talk much these days for, um, for various reasons, um, although saying this, I think there's a chance he has done one of these interviews before, and there's even a chance that he might listen to this, um, <laughs> at some point, and if you do, hi, um, let's, let's hang out sometime. Um, you know who you are. <laughs> um, 
Yes, so then... Queer community... When, when I was sort of thinking about moving to New York, I wasn't, I wasn't looking on Craigslist for housing, I was looking on Queer Housing New York. And so by that right. point, I was, through the group house form, the queer community was just something I assumed of myself. I was like, yes, I've, I'm part of a queer community anywhere I go, so this is automatically going to be where I, where I start approaching, right. approaching this. And what, like, um, how have you found it in terms of that way? Like, how do you find, how have you found living in group, group homes? Um, like, punk houses and trans houses, trans punk houses? And... Well, I am absolutely sick of it, I'll say. <laughs> um, um, I'll say, you know, that, the house that I, the house that I lived in, because I've, I've really, I've had two big group house experiences. Mm-hmm. One, before I moved up, was five people, was, was five people in a three-bedroom, um, or variations on, on, on four or four to five people in a three-bedroom, um, and it was too small, and, you know, one of the roommates, of course, turned out to be this crazy abusive dude, and, um, every, everyone who ever lived in that house was was trans um in 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 some capacity um but you know one of them turned out to be really abusive um and then the person who ended up replacing him um is a huge sweetheart and a hot fucking mess and had two cats that um she did not do a good job of things like cleaning their litter boxes, um, and, like, yeah, you know how it goes with, like, dishes and, like, like, social or reproductive stuff that you, that everyone in a house needs to be on their shit with, and I'm not on my shit with by any stretch of the imagination, um, for many reasons, uh, many of which actually relate to my dad and, um, and my formative experiences around executive function. Um, and so, so then up, up here in New York, this, this group house I lived in was, um, a seven bedroom, um, and everyone almost everyone we ever had live in that house was trans the the two cis people that were there were a couple um and um when i interviewed them for the house the the dude was like passed as a trans man incredibly well. This is, like, super embarrassing to say. He passed as a trans man incredibly well, and they found the listing from Queer Housing New York, and I had said in the listing that I was, that we were looking for, um, trans people, um, preferred, but that, you know, other people in, in need of housing would, we would, we'd talk to you. Um... So you just assumed he was trans? I just assumed this was a trans guy, um, and I turned out to, that turned out to be, uh, very wrong, and, um, turned out to be a scummy, abusive cis man. Um, right. I'm laughing at this. I know, it's like, it's... (laughs) 
guess it's a laugh at you, but no, no, absolutely, <laughs> it's hilarious. It's so funny. Like, <laughs> I can so see that happening to me. But also, like, how do you start telling the other people in the house that you? Oh my god. <laughs> Because I know you told somebody beforehand. Well, part of, part of this also is that, so this was a couple, and and the girl was pregnant. And I had just assumed it was from an entirely different father. <laughs> I assumed, and that was how everyone found out that this guy was cis, was everyone realizing, oh, he's actually the baby daddy. Um, which is like, <laughs> um, you know, things out, like, things outside the just, like, the normal, like, heterosexual family structure, you know, become, you know, when you're, when you're in the queer community, whatever that means, things outside the normal heterosexual family structure become just so normal that when things, like, are those like heterosexual <laughs> narratives? You're like, wait, what? <laughs> it's it's confusing. You're like, wait, what? Like, <clears throat> wow. I don't remember the last time I lived with a cis person. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well that's that was all in New York, right? That yeah, and yeah. that was in New York. I and think, then I, think I remember talking to you about some of that. Yeah, and there there's so much messy messy stuff there, and part of it was you know people living in that house also. Um, people living in that house needing more support than other people in that house were able to give. Right. Um, and so some people in the house, um, really needing, um, really needing financial support and needing there to be less rent to be paid, um, but of course, you know, we the, the landlord didn't decide the rent. The rent for the house was fifty five hundred and right. we decided how to split that up among the rooms. Um and so people needing less rent to be paid, but other people not being able to take on more rent. Right. Um or, you know, um people needing more um more care around sort of um around a physical disability that yeah, yeah, someone, someone, like, one person can't do the dishes because of their physical ability where they can't stand up, and another person not being able to do the dishes because, um, they've been depressed in bed for two weeks, and, um, in, in all elements of it, like, everyone, it's, it's weird because it, it's sort of, I think within capitalism, it sort of betrays an, um, an impossibility of queer community. Um, and I think a lot of times when people talk about queer community being impossible, they talk about it in these sort of moralistic terms, right? Where it's like queer community is impossible um, because... Um, someone's always a scumbag, right? And of course, you know, there's the, the scumbags as they happen, certainly. Um, but part of it is impossible also. And, and, and the, the more charitable, actually the more charitable version of that narrative, um, is, um, 
you know, with people's, uh, related to sort of people's internal, intern, internalized, um, internalized ableism and, um, and that sort of around, um, both sort of, uh, physical and, and psychological, um, disabilities. And so, so the charitable reading is, you know, you've internalized, um, all of these isms about, say, your, um, your roommate downstairs who you don't know how to deal with because she's having a psychotic episode. Um, and, and so there's an element <coughs> of that in this sort of impossibility of queer community. Um, but at the same time, the fact that there always are these situations and like that, that there always are these situations, the fact that this is sort of a universal of queer community is not because queer people just all suck. No. It's, and so, so, so I guess the, the, the way people usually talk about it is that queer people it is sort of coming from everyone sucks and um because everyone has internalized all of these all of these things that are handed to us are are sort of systemic inheritance from culture on the whole um but i think it's a little less straight forward than that um because i think it the fact that it it always turns out like that well i mean it's yeah it's because we're all messy but like it's not the fault of queerness or queer community or attempts at it that we're all messy um but at the same time, we really are all so messy in so many of these ways that are, that turn out to be irreconcilable, right? That turn out to be impossible to overcome. Um, but oppression harms people. Yeah. Um... And it, it's, it's so, it's, I, to me, it, it's so much a factor of, like, how much the world has screwed all of us all the time, right? Um, and, you know, I say that now being at a point where I am deeply happy to live in a one-bedroom apartment with just my partner and cat and not have any other roommates. Um, but I think well, I don't know, it's um, yeah, I think of this, uh, this, uh, this is very much like a sort of a pithy aphorism, um, and it's 
from uh, Lauren Goldner paraphrasing Bordiga. Um, and he says, communism is the material human community, right? And so the, the idea being that it doesn't just seem like community is impossible in capitalism, or is possible in capitalism and you just have to try harder, mm. right? That's really, that's the, that's the narrative I have, I take issue with, is the, the narrative that the failures of queers to make good queer communities um, is the fault of us not trying hard enough. Absolutely, yeah. Um... And really that there is a fundamental impossibility to any such project that, um, that can only be overcome by changing, you know, all the relations of society and all of the, all of the organizations and, you know, all this stuff all the all of us you know internet marxists are always going on about <laughs> um well that actually is a good uh stopping point for our second break because i'm gonna i want to ask you next about politics things more directly wonderful um and also get back into a little bit of some identity questions but maybe we'll do it in that order what do you cool. think okay that's cool break number two Okay, so I wanted to ask you about how you got into left politics and how you moved from this kind of liberal, nerd, semi-queer situation into a lefter, trans or communist. Well, that's a great well. question. That has nothing to do with anything we might have been talking about <laughs> off camera or off, uh, off the air, right? Um, well, okay, and um, to, to clarify, to give context to where this is going, uh, where, where this story will go, um, I should say that we were talking off, off the air about, um, like, about how cancellation, um, comes back to, like, comes back to haunt you in the weirdest ways, in the weirdest times that, like, um that you feel like a weird, like, glitch in the Matrix deja vu kind of thing. Um, and, um, and so with this, um, you know, I've, I've talked already about how for a while my main queer community was nerd fighters of the greater DC area, and then also through, um, through, you know, this other person I knew, I became involved, um, with my local punk scene, and I met a lot of queers and anarchists and, and, and trans people and I was exposed to, you know, I, I knew some trans people and some non-binary people before that, um, but all of them, all of them essentially were normies. Some of them were just nerd normies, right? Um, and so this is my, my, that, scene being how I was introduced to the possibility of anything outside of, of a certain kind of normalcy. Um, and, you know, the definitive break of when I, one of my big, um, social groups became replaced with another, became replaced with the punks, and then also, um, at the same time, um, I got into left book, um, 
because this was as, as I was getting into radical politics. Um, yeah, so I was, so, I was in Night Fighters, still a big group of mine, um, and this is when I was 17, this is shortly after the end of my year-long relationship with a 23-year-old divorcee, and, um, who was also, who I, I got into Nerd Fighters and was also in Nerd Fighters with me, and I think dated an 18-year-old, we were poly, and I think, I think they dated an 18-year-old that we knew from Nerd Fighters at some point, um, and there's much I could say about this ex of mine, um, but that is not the story I'm telling right now, um, so, <coughs> you know, the way it, so, so, so shortly after that breakup, um, fairly soon after that breakup, um, I had a, a suicide attempt, um, and so I spent uh, I spent a week in inpatient, and when I got back, um, I was like so excited to be out of this mental hospital, um, and so I hung out with a bunch of friends, and I got like extremely shit-faced drunk, and I woke up the next morning in the ER, um, and, you know, by the time I woke up, I was, like, permanently banned from Nerdfighters as a greater DC area, um, and from what I gather, I sexually harassed someone in the group, um, I never actually found out exactly what happened, or, like, I never found out the details of this. Um, I, I still don't know, but I do, I do know that the same night I also sexually harassed someone else that I went to high school with, um, who in turn is related to an extremely weird and complicated story that, um, I don't think I have time to get into at this second, um, is that that important? But... Anyhow, so I'm banned from Nerd Fighters at this point, um, and yeah, you know, there's the part where I, you know, I get into therapy, I start processing my gender more, I change a lot as a person, um, and um, and over time, over years, sort of, like, forget about that in a certain way, right? It, it gets out of my consciousness. Um, and it stays that way until, like, last year, um, when we are, in, we are auditioning um, prospective roommates for, for a spot in my, like, nine-person group house. Um... And, um, you know, we have someone who's interested, this, like, you know, this nice, like, white, nerdy, trans guy, and he, he's all on board, he's all interested, and then he finds out that I live in this house and is, like, not comfortable living there, um, and this is because he remembers me being cancelled in Nerd Fighters of the Greater DC area when I was 17. And so now it's like five years later and nowhere near the DC area. Um, and 
but this guy like just remembers this. Um, and of course, part of it is, you know, I I have no idea what sort of things were said about me um, during that period after I I was I was kicked out, and you know, many of them I I am sure I deserved. Um, I mean, and I, I really do take seriously the idea that I, I did something substantially fucked up. Um, and goodness knows that, um, you know, I could absolutely talk about other substantially fucked up things that I did at, at that point in my life, which, um, are absolutely, which are, like, you know, absolutely cancelable offenses, and also things very deeply formative to the decisions I made on how I want to be a good person mm -hmm. and what gender I want to have um, and how, you know, how I want to interact with the world. Um, and part of... Uh, yeah, so, so, so there's that, but then you know, also in, in the, the explicitly political dimension of it, in a very substantial way, I know this was an excuse to kick me out of that group, and they wanted to kick me out anyway. Because a couple of weeks before this, I got in a very big fight uh, with one of the admins, because me being a baby anarchist, I made a status on my own wall that said, Hillary Clinton is trash, and this fucking lady was, um, was like, really, really, um, indignant about this, and, um, was like, it's misogynist to call any woman trash, is what she said to me, which is baffling, and I know this person had, has, um, has all other kinds of, like, real whack politics, I, I, people I later on met, um, through, you know, um, through sort of queer punk scenes, um, I, I met some other people who, um, who knew her, um, who went to the same, um, college as her, and remembered her being, um, being the most vocal defender of that school's queer student union, um, having gay cops at pride events like like she's like what i did yeah right and so this admin um with just the fucking worst politics um you know already like did have it in for me um and then i did something scummy for which i you know absolutely deserved some kind of social consequence and i'm sure that this um the social consequence is probably uh, what was best for, you know, the, the person that I, I haven't mentioned, the person who I um, harassed at this point in time, um, I don't know who they are. Um, I, I, I really, really have, have no memory of it. Um, just that something to that extent must have happened. Um, and it, it's fucking weird when, when five years later... Someone who remembers that doesn't want to be a roommate. Right. That's very weird. But so, you got kicked out of this group, and that overlaps a little bit with when you started becoming more of a radical. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. You know, again, um... You know, I, I mentioned that I got my, my 
my ex into that group, um, and my ex was like, um, one of the shitty, you know, one of the, um, uh, the abusive things that my ex did, um, in that relationship, um, yeah, of course, in, in, in any relationship like that, if you're fucking in your 20s and, in, in your mid-20s and divorced, and you're dating a 16-year-old, um, you know, there's, there's, ne necessarily part of that dynamic is ways in which you're sort of lording your maturity over them, and I was getting into radical politics at the time through meeting, you know, these punks and, um, and anarchists, and through my friendship with this, um, this person I mentioned earlier, um, and, you know, my, my ex was like, was like, oh, these, you know, these anarchists who are wrong and can't get anything done because they want to be outside the system. Um, and so it was me getting into and committing to radical politics, um, was very, very much comorbid with me, you know, me getting kicked out of nerd fighters is my main social mm -hmm. group on the internet and um you know me me getting introduced to facets of you know queer and and, and like left book and like like all these facebook groups and and subcultures um Do you remember any, by any chance the first like left facebook group you joined oh, like the actually very first um I think I was very, very initially, um, I think where it started was with the sort of quote-unquote weird Facebook, um, and these, um, groups like, um, like Post Aesthetics and Cool Freaks Wikipedia Club, um, which I'm so sorry to anybody listening to this in the future because I'm sure this means absolutely nothing to you and I cannot explain these to you. <laughs> like, just try, take, take that these groups existed and take that they had um, really, really, really strange political moments. You know, Cool Freaks Wikipedia Club um, ended up being, like, very largely a tanky thing for a while and, like, like, um, and you, you, you listener, you don't even necessarily know what a tanky is. Um, they do if they listen to enough of the trans commie. Yeah, if you, if you listen to enough of, of the, 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 the trans commie interviews, you know what a tanky is. Um, yeah, there's, there's no real way for me to properly explain all of these subcultural things to you. Um, for many reasons, one of which is, um, you know, even if I had the time, um, I was an extremely mentally fucked up 17-year-old at the time of all of this. I was dissociating constantly. I don't remember shit about fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't remember anything. Um, just that it happened and it was weird. Um, um, 
It's yeah, and 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 you know, do you know what analogy I can make? There's this concept in um in the mythology of the Elder Scrolls video games. There's a concept called um, a dragon break, and it's in part how they sort of deal with the fact that they make these... These games are these, like, fast open-world RPGs set in the same world at different times in history, and, um... And you can influence major political events of the world, but then there has to... It has to be consistent. Every possibility has to be consistent with a sort of future time in the universe. Um where the next game is going to start, right? And so, so they, to, to help deal with that problem, they introduced into the lore this concept of a dragon break, which in this, you know, in this fan high fantasy mythology are points in time where, um, for some reason, for some world historic reason, um, time just gets really fucked up. And, you know, everything that happens at this point in time, you'll hear, like, of the same event, um, you know, all these bizarrely and, and, you know, these incompatible recollections of events and, you know, all these things mm. that happened. Um, and the only things that are certain are... <laughs> there's a, sorry, there's a very talkative cat joining us. Hello. Uh, the only things that are, are certain are um, that there is a sort of consistent, um, coherent version of the world before the dragon break, mm -hmm. and a consistent version of the world after the dragon break. Mm -hmm. And all of the time in the middle, who the fuck knows? And so <laughs> canonically, it's like, canonically, it's like sort of a Schrodinger-y, like cat-y sort of like... All of these possibilities all happened at the same time, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and that's sort of how I feel about this time in my life, yeah. right? Where I, you know, where, where I'm, I'm 17 in the middle of a, of a big breakup with a partner and with an entire social network and a way of sort of relating to sociality and then me being introduced to an entirely different one. And then things within that, even, in an ongoing way, being so profoundly weird. And there being so much change and upheaval and, like, things that it... It mirrors trauma, in a way, because it's this... Um, although, although it's spread over a much longer time... In the way that, um, yeah, this this is a, a sort of a psychoanal uh, psychoanalytic point, a sort of Lacanian idea, um, is that trauma disrupts your ability to self-narrativize. That's right. Right. It disrupts your ability to tell a story about what happened. Um, and, you know, you can remember all of, all of these details of it, but you can never, um, the, the way that, that the uh, psychoanalysts have said is that you can't integrate it into the symbolic order, mm -hmm. right? You can't, you can't 
make a cohesive story out of it. And you can't have sort of signifiers when it point to things concretely. Um, and I, I, I very much feel that way about, like, yeah, kind of multiple years of my life, mm-hmm. right? Um, most of being in college... Uh, most or all of, of being in college, right, uh, of those those years of my life were very much defined by that. And there's a part of me that wants to say, oh, wait, this happens to everyone in capitalist society, because that's like what puberty is, right? Because, again, the ages that this is happening is the ages of... Most people of, aren't in college when they're... Most people aren't in college in the ages of 15 and 18, <laughs> but no. for me, this is, you know, this is those ages, and, you know, everyone probably does some amount of that at those ages, but, um, but in a way I can't even, like, relate to that, because I just know that for me it was so fucking weird. And on the other side of it, I am now something resembling a well-formed person, um, and I, um, it's been a number of years since I have done anything that I might um, that I think would be really properly cancelable, um, and I still know some people from that time, you know, I met my partner during that time, and we're still together, um, uh, even though a lot of events during that, during that time, um, even strained our relationship, um, and formed part of, formed big parts of how we relate to each other now and, like, what things we are anxious about in the relationship and our relations to each other. Um, it's, it's, it's a fucking weird point in time, or a a weird span of time. Um, in a way, my whole childhood was like that. Um, because I just had these really, really deeply weird ways of trying to relate to people socially. Mm -hmm. Um, And because um, that's that's the other problem with it, is that, you know, I, I call it you know, I think of this, I, I, I call, I compared it to this dragon break in this, in these video games where it's, there's a consistent world before the break and a consistent world after the break. Um, but really the problem in this, with this is that it's impossible for me to pin, the, 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 the way that analogy breaks down is that here it's impossible for me to pin down quite when it started. Um, because is a very real way that you know it started when I was 10 and I started eighth grade and there's a real way that it started when I was nine and found out about porn and learned some very fucking deeply unhealthy and masculine um, conceptions of sexuality what do you mean? Um, from that, um, oh, so that's, that's part of it that, um, 
I think... I think to sort of cite that as a source of trauma um, relates to, you know, from the time I would say, I would say starting in, in, in very real ways, probably by the age of 10, um, and until about the age of, until sort of, uh, the ages of 16 or 17, I was a really deeply fucked up person. And I don't just mean in terms of my internal psychological sense of the world, but I mean as far as how I related to other people. Right, my this cancellation of mine at seventeen. Um, part of part of how I have to think about that too is, you know, um, at the same time as that, you know, I I, I was sexually harassed at that point in time, um, or I sorry, I sexually harassed someone at that point in time, um, and I I hate to sort of put degrees of gradation, um, on shitty behavior, but that was very much this sort of tail end last bastion, the last vestige of a lot of stuff before that, where I was fucked up to people in much more real ways, um, much, much more substantial, I should say, um, ways than, you know, sexually harassing someone over a Facebook message where they can block you, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I'll, I'll say even there was, there's, there's stuff after that that I, that I, to this day, really don't feel good about, um, but, you know, that, that was really on the, the tail end of the, the more fucked up parts of that, and, so much of it has to do with how I learned to have a sexual identity, how I learned to relate to people sexually, mm -hmm. how I learned to think about sex. Um, and so, so, you know, Kate, you asked about, um, about porn as part of that, right? And, and this um, about what I meant when I sort of, um, said that some that started with me at the age of nine being, um, you know, being, being exposed to porn. First, like, the, first from there, you know, sort of is the content of the porn I was exposed to, um, because part of my my sex education as a child was, you know, to think of sex as, um, to think of sex as
that you know it's something that you know when when two people love each other very much mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um and this is my this is my first exposure to sex that wasn't Mm-hmm. sort of in the confines basically in the confines of marriage mm-hmm. um even if they even if my mom was trying to be woke about it and didn't say marriage right. um basically basically marriage um you know like the the first like porn site that i found was anal gate and the second one was like double penetration <laughs> as the concept, right? right? And holy shit, when you're fucking nine right. and you're like, oh, this is what sex is. This is right. what's hot. Right. This is, okay. You don't question it, right? You right. don't think twice about that. You don't think of the relationship of gender and gender depression and, and gender violence to that. You don't, you don't think of it in violent terms, right? Um, and I even, I, I, I think as a child, I very much struggled even, even while I was on the receiving end of violence from my father, mm-hmm. um, and from my peers at times, um, I, violence was something I had very, very little ability to conceptualize. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, you know, my, my, as a... You know, if, if we're if we're all New Yorkers here, we have to talk about our nine eleven stories. And my nine eleven story is being old enough to know that action movie violence was cool, but not old enough to know about death. And so I thought it was awesome, right? I was like, "Holy shit! This plane crashed into this building, and it was so cool that everyone got to go home from preschool early, so they could all be excited about how cool it was." Wow. Which is like, yeah, because I was four and. You were four, well. Yeah, and fucking weird. Um, and... And so... And so... That sort of being part of my sexual awakening at nine, um, you know, it's, that combined with, um, um, and there's a lot of reasons connected to all of these formative childhood reasons, um, childhood things, but, you know, I had these extreme sort of attention-seeking behaviors, Mm -hmm. um, and you're seeking attention by any means necessary, right? Um, <coughs> and being gross and being like really, really publicly horny and sexually harassing people, and right. that being the, being part of that. This, um, you know, when when I was in college, you know, uh, through through the age of fifteen, you know, um, at fifteen, um, one of my absolute favorite jokes and i got in trouble for this um my absolute favorite jokes at at 15 um and being all of these things and being really into like south park and family guy and that kind of shit um was to say that i could rape someone and then prosecute them for it 
How is that even a joke? I don't know, but I framed <laughs> it as one. I framed it as one, and I thought it was hilarious. Right. And even my relationship to the ways in which I... Even my relationship to my real-life oppression at that time was... as a vehicle for edgy attention-seeking, right? right? Another favorite joke of mine... Um, you know, we have to we have to follow everyone's favorite problematic fave, uh, Slavoj Žižek here, and, and, and psychoanalyze the jokes. Um, you know, uh, another um, favorite joke of mine at the time, one that I cannot take credit for coming up with, but that I was very into telling, um, was that the worst part about being a black Jew is standing at the back of the gas chamber, just like. The worst shit, the worst shit, and related to that, um, is, um, an escalation in the violence of, of the, the porn I was consuming, and, and, you know, more more intense kink stuff, um, and, um, almost a, you know, I, I still identified as, as pansexual, um, and at that point pansexuality was in a lot of ways almost like heterosexuality where the two genders are me and anything abstractly fuckable. Um, <laughs> I don't want to laugh at that. Joke, I know, it's yeah. Really funny. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's, well, it's also the, like, classic, like, bi like bisexuals will fuck anything that moves. Yeah, right? It's <laughs> just like, but in this, like, really fucked up masculine mm -hmm. variation, um, and the, and the, the most extreme parts of this, um, get to a point where, um, um, I'm consuming pornographic depictions, um, of pedophilia, mm -hmm. right? Of, you know, adults knowingly manipulating and taking advantage of young girls and with that it was it's always with girls mm -hmm. um and at the time at least it was it's really really weird to to think of this in retrospect but at the time at least you know me being like 14 15 getting into that and conceptualizing it as you know conceptualizing it in a way where I identify as this adult man doing this really really fucking violent thing and mm -hmm. you know um 
and and I rationalize it to myself in all of these sort of classic ways that people who sort of essentially in the ways that you know people who pursue pedophilia as an identity and try to sort of justify it in sort of a way of you know it's possible this is just these urges I have and I can't escape it and um, I'm I'm sublimating it through engaging with pornographic media depicting it um, and that prevents me from actually doing it right right that like all of these sort of discourses of that but for me as a teenager engaging with it and in ways that are retro in retrospect like I, I don't want to say that secretly at the time, deep down, I actually identified with the, the, with the young girls, with I the object of desire. I could say that, and it would be true. Well, I think... I think... Uh, narrativizing it as an adult, um, as an adult who... Um, turned out to be a transgender woman, um, who decided to be, and I, I very much think of it as a, as a decision, um, and, you know, living my life the way I do now, it's impossible, sort of, you know, when I try to get myself into that mindset, when I try to put myself in the head of my childhood, of my, my teenage self engaging this, I can only do so by identifying with the child. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if that's quite the same as me having, like, sort of deep down identified with the child all along. Well, I mean, I think most psychoanalytic theory would require you to be doing both at the same time. I, I do think that, yeah, that it is uh, very much worth doing both. Um, I'm interested in the thing you just said, though, about, like, how the experience of how you live your life now as an adult sort of changes the impossibility of thinking about some things, but also probably is the result of and pr has produced, right, like, the ability to think about a whole shitload of other things and, and do other things. Um, and I'm just thinking about that from the perspective of, like, Marxism and maybe Marxism versus other kind of left currents, because that's something that I think about a lot, about how what we do actually is what shapes our thoughts, not just thoughts, but like our ideas and our thoughts and our sense of possibility versus often the other way around. Like often, at least when I tell a story about myself and how I became radical, I sort of narrate it from, oh, I thought this and then I did this. That's often not always the case. And I guess I'm curious about that order well, of operations in your sense of self. Right. Well, you know, as I was... As I was, you know, getting this, I guess, I guess to answer that, I in the context of this and these really, really fucked up things I was doing, um, and the ways that this was all really fucked up, um, I think. Yeah, you know, interacting with a queer community. 
um, my sort of local queer pucks, um, you know, being exposed to them socially was, was very interesting for me. Um, it was not the first time I'd been exposed to queerness and to transness, but, um, it was the first time I was, um, exposed to anyone who was a victim of childhood sexual assault. And one of the things that was very formative in some of those relationships for me was um, was hearing these people talk about the ways that being a victim of sexual assault as a child shaped their identities and shaped their mental illness. And being like, wait, I wasn't a victim of sexual assault as a child. Why do I identify with this so much? Mm. Um, and in that sense, you know, with, with the, I, I, I almost came to think for a time, and I, I still kind of think this, um, is I sexually assaulted myself as a child um, with porn being a symbolic mediator of that. Mm. Um, which is fucking weird. Um, which is, which is really strange. Um, and so part of it was, you know, exposure to these people that I can identify with and sort of realizing I need to not be fucked up. Like I, for reasons I can't quite articulate, it feels like there's something that feels very deeply wholesome and, and safe about being in the company of these people. And I need to not be fucked up. Or I'm, yeah, I need to not be fucked up to do it. Um, and that was part of it. And then part of it also was um, other relationships I had with people I was close to that were impacted by me being fucked up, right? And I think of a, a couple of relationships in particular. Um, one being with a person who I was very close, who I was best friends with at this time, and who I had a very large crush on, and who I, I very much, you know, as, as I said all this, all of this is, as so much of this is comorbid with me being into nerdfighters and the John and Hank Green fandom, and so much of this had to do with me reading John Green's books. Um, I don't know who that is, can you tell me? Um, John Green, um... He's a novelist, um, half of the the vlog brothers of YouTube who rose to stardom by deciding to, you know, they're brothers and they decided to communicate by public video blogs for an entire year um, as their, their sole communication with one another. Um, and 
um, you know, John Green um, is, a, is a, a young adult novelist, um, and I identified a lot. And you know, his books get sort of criticized. One of the things his books get criticized for is um, having a lot of these characters that are manic pixie dream girls, mm -hmm. um, and then these sort of narrators always being these like kind of awkward nerdy friend zone guys right um and i i i identified and related with that super hard and so it was a very close friend of mine who i was like really kind of manipulative to manipulative and i would i would say um abusive at points in our friendship and we are still friends um and um and yeah, you know, we we keep in touch, and he's awesome, and I'm very grateful for you for being in my life. You know who you are. Um, and you're both and, grown now, which is also different. Mm -hmm. And you're both like adults. At this we're point. both adults. We're both different genders now. Um, also, <laughs> a weird other factor in a lot of this is that a lot of the people I had um, unhealthy crushes at this point in time, at, 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 during these times of my life turned out to be trans guys later right. on, which... I think that's a common experience that many of us have had, yeah. I don't know why <laughs> It's a thing. Um, yeah. Um, and so, so that was one relationship. Um, and then another relationship I had um, was with... With a Mormon girl that I knew, uh, my age, um, and it was an internet, we knew each other in real life, but it was, it was really an internet relationship, um, and this is, you know, this is, I think, when I'm 15, um, and... my and and in you know in this relationship i i was abusive in this relationship this is of the of the relationships and of the 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 places i've been where i've been shitty this is the one where most clear-cut absolutely with certainty i will say i was abusive to this person um and it was in a way of being very sexually aggressive, being a dom. It was it was very very much a BDSM relationship, and in a way where I pressured <coughs> this person into being in this BDSM relationship with me, um, and forcing it to be entirely on my terms, um, and crossing every boundary that. I could, um, and it's very, it's, I don't know if I ever would have been able to reach a point in my life where I feel redeemed as a person if this relationship had, as it happened, had not been pretty much entirely online. Um, you mean like you weren't physically in, in contact with this person? Yeah, this yes, um, because, um, I think 
the introduction of sort of physical viscerality into this. Um, I don't know what the fuck, how the fuck I would have ended up. I don't know what it would have done to me. I can't, I can't even say. Um, I don't know what it would have done to her. You also don't know what it would have been like if you actually did meet very much in your life. Like, that might have disrupted some of that dynamic as well. Yeah, um, certainly. And, and so this, and, and, and I would, I would, I would do all these beast practices and do so, um, do so, um, like, by, by very classic manipulative and abusive tactics. Things like, like, I would, I would withhold affection. I would ghost her if she didn't, mm -hmm. like, you know, I, would, I would ghost her if she didn't send me nudes. Like, right. it's so fucked up. Um, and this was, this stuff was so pervasive for a while, and, you know, I remember even, um, times where I was, where I was with my ex, um, and I was, a uh, on my way to being a better person at that point in time, um, this, this is the, the, uh, the ex who was much older than me, and I, I remember, like, having dreams of, like, violently sexually assaulting people. having having dreams of that that I can I can still remember very very clearly um and there there was a a a part there was a point where You know, as I was, as I was becoming more sort of woke in, in, in a mm -hmm. Tumblr feminism kind of way, you know, um, where, is where this began is like the realization that I have to change something incredibly deep-seated mm -hmm. about who I am and how I relate to people because right now I'm a monster I'm a, a monstrously horrible person an incredibly fucked up person in the world and and so when that sort of turns into action and turns into into steps towards transition mm -hmm. Um, you know, oh, as yeah. I've... Can I just clarify yeah. one thing, which is, we're so deeply associated that you're not saying it out loud, but, like, the monster horrible person is a man, and the step to stop being that is to not be a man. Is to be yes, a that is absolutely where I'm, the direction I'm going. Um, yeah, and so, so, to, you know, to bring it back with, you know, meeting these these punks and, and that becoming my social network and realizing that it was very, very fulfilling um, or felt very safe. Um, also very deeply uncomfortable in certain ways because I just didn't know how to feel comfortable not being awful. Um, 
Not that I felt particularly comfortable when I was awful. Um, <laughs> and... And... Yeah, so, so feeling, feeling deeply compelled towards wanting close friendship from these people um and not being able to articulate it and not knowing why and then and were they like out queer they were out queers at this point yeah they they yeah. were out queers this is yeah. this is a punk scene right. of almost entirely like right. out queers a lot of non-binary people and, and right. trans people um And in that sort of scene, kind of not knowing why I, I I was so compelled to this to the to these relationships, um, th during that time is the point where I started identifying as non-binary and going by they them pronouns mm -hmm. and. And then, you know, starting to explore <coughs> transness in all these various ways and mediated, mediated through that queer community, certainly, um, you know, through that, through a reading at that house, I met, um, uh, Casey Plett, who's a really brilliant mm -hmm. trans writer, um, and, and absolutely an incredibly kind person, gave me a free copy of her book at a ride home, um, because she had an internal or an uh an intuitive sense that i really needed it uh -huh. um amazing more so than i had that sense mm -hmm. um and so me just having all of this like stuff going on and, and that i that i didn't know why right um and and, and so that's that's when i i began identifying as as non-binary um yeah the um actually the 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 casey plett reading was the first i think the first time i ever wore makeup and the first time i ever wore a dress that wasn't in a kink setting um And then, and, and so, so with this was this like very, this, this was all happening alongside a very, very fundamental need to, to change how I relate to the world and and how I imagine myself in the world. And then sort of later on, um, in my, it was with, in, with my relationship with my current partner, um, you know, well into our relationship, um, ways in which I, in which a lot of the 
patterns and a lot of the thought processes and intuitive behaviors, things that I had previously internalized, um, you know, some of those started to reproduce themselves in a relationship, and I felt incredibly guilty about the it. The one you're in now, you're in, yeah, in 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 the relationship I'm still in, and I felt incredibly guilty about it. Um, and you know, I, I felt incredibly incredibly fucked up about it, and this guilt was just so much of uh, so much part of this, and it was during that point of time as I was like trying to figure out why I can't stop doing these things that are bad. Even now that I know that I want to, and I, like, I want to more than anything, I, I, I can't figure out how to stop it, and I don't know what to do with that, and that sort of terrifying sense of having absolutely no control, control. over yourself. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point, you know, where... Where in in talking through that, in talking through that, Adrian, my my partner, had the had the thought or um, you know suggested to me like like it sounds like a lot of this has to do with ways in which you really hate your body, and you should try going on HRT to make your body different. And this, like, blew my fucking mind. <laughs> um, you know, and this, and just through, through, through this relationship, um, you know, Adrian, Adrian also, I think, um, suggested that I, I, I think it might have been at, at Adrian's suggestion that I, that I started going specifically by she, her pronouns, even. Um, and essentially, you know, the, the, when I, to sort of articulate in retrospect what I couldn't articulate at the time, mm -hmm. when I started going by they, them pronouns, it was, um, it was, first it was, a social move related to these, these social people that I felt comfortable around. Right. It was a social move. It was the des the the desire to signify to them being part of it that I'm well being part of it. But even more than that, the desire to signify that I'm a safe person to be around. Ah, uh, okay. Right. The desire to <laughs> signify I am not a harmful person. Mm -hmm. Um. And then it sort of morphed into realizing that for me, being a safe person to be around, being not harmful, specifically meant not being a man. Yeah. I uh, had to not, I had to not be a man. And then... taking more moves towards transitioning in ways where I'm, like, really... Transitioning in ways that are... 
I started, you know, being very, very non-binary and, um, you know, sort of a lot of, like, facial hair and dress combinations and right. such yeah. in, in how I was presenting, um, but, you know, making this step sort of, um, transitioning in ways where I'm changing my body chemistry, mm-hmm. um, was kind of realizing that if I really want to not be a man however much I want to not have a gender, there's going to be a gender there. I right. have to pick which gender it's going to be. Yeah. And I, and I picked woman. Um, yeah. And, and I say all of this, I say all of this about the fact that I very sort of specifically decided to be a woman, um, in that way. Um, and, feel absolutely compelled to juxtapose it with an anecdote from being 10 years old. I was in eighth grade. I was in English class. I was not paying attention to the teacher. I was daydreaming. Um, specifically, you know, I was having sexual fantasies Mm -hmm. and I was fantasizing, um, about myself and my own body masturbating and I had a vagina and this continued for a bit and then I had a specific thought of it was almost like you know when I get home from school this is something I'm going to try when I'm masturbating with my vagina right like and that was like and, and it was at that point where I, it's like, wait a minute. where I realized, <laughs> yeah. where I realized, exactly where I realized, wait, that's not my genitals. And I got freaked the fuck out. Right. Even at the, by this point in time, I'm like, you know, I'm like, this is, this is so crass. I'm, I'm at this point in time, I'm jerking it to like, Fudinari, like, like dick girl hentai all the time. Right. Like, but that that moment of like, wait a minute, I actually don't have a vagina. And, and being freaked out by the fact that there was any amount of time that you were like, not, not totally. Yeah. 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 Um, and that like, so that is so interesting, you know, cause uh, trans people talk all the time about like the sort of relative merits of being born a trans woman versus becoming a trans woman, um, and this is all to say that the answer is probably both. Yeah. Right. Um, and well, it's certainly necessarily, but it's certainly necessarily both. In, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it, it, it's necessarily both and and so this way that this for me was like having that on the one hand and then being really fucked up for ways very deeply connected to my gender deciding that I wanted to stop being a bad person and then realizing that the only way for me to do that was to transition I mean, it makes 
makes sense to me, but I, I do have some questions. Yes. I have some questions after I pee, though, because this is the segment we've, we've already, we've been, we've been at it for a while. Yeah. I, okay. I think I also have to pee. Okay. Well, you can go first. Okay, so I guess one question that I wanted to ask you was about kind of like in telling this story, um, it occurs to me that there's like a lot of the transphobic narratives about trans women kind of appear in the story as like reality, like both the kind of, you know, transness is about kind of violent sexual deviance and, and a kind of hyper-masculinity as well as um, Autogynophilia. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean that, but it was actually the one that was immediately occurring to me. Um, but also the kind of like, I guess also the kind of like, the flip side of it, this like radical feminism that like men are predators and women are not. And I'm just, I'm curious what you, I know that you have thought about that, I'm sure, and I'm curious what you do think about it now. It's definitely something that's hard for me to escape from as far as, like, my actual, um, thought, um, my sort of internalized thoughts and, like, the way I, I think about myself and the, the way I feel about myself, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it definitely gets embroiled in my, in my mental illness, um, you know, part of it, I, it's very easy, of course, for me to discount it theoretically, uh, of course, um, as far as actual encounters with it, um, I really actually only ever had one direct encounter with it, um, and this had to do with someone I went to high school with. Um, actually, this is very funny. Um, this is something that I, I, like, an hour ago, I mentioned a story that I would not have time to get into, and you've asked the question that forces me to tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> so this is great. Um, this is great in some sort of holistic, grand, unified uh, kind of way. I did um, tell you my job was anthropologist, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, so this has to do with um, uh, someone I went to high school with, um, and was friends with... Um, well, what this has to do with specifically, um, with, um, with, with what this has to do with, uh, we were talking about earlier is that, um, I mentioned that someone that, that I sexually harassed, um, some I, I didn't know for sure what uh, that I sexually harassed this person in Nerd Fighters, but that I did definitely sexually harass someone that I um, went to high school with. Um, the person I'm talking about in this story, the the the, the other character in this story is the girlfriend, or the at the time girlfriend of the person I went to high school with that I sexually harassed at that point, um, who, like, afterwards, like, um, sort of really butched up and sort of came to her girlfriend's defense and was like, don't talk to my girlfriend ever again. Um, and, and you know, we later reconciled. Um, we, we were very much on again, off again friends for a while. Um, 
so so we reconciled at some point after that. But then, yeah, you know, sort of as I was um, as as I was um, deeper into transitioning, she um, became Tumblr famous on Radfem Tumblr, um, and this is um, I guess this is the other cancellation of my life. This one I, I was I took a lot less seriously because um it was it was the the sort of people that were canceling me were like a bunch of fucking turfs I'd never met in my life, right? It wasn't right. like like my main sort of social right, right. community that was canceling me. Um so well I made a post saying um that it uh, I made I made a Tumblr post saying that it was transphobic for lesbians to not be um, into trans women, uh, to sort of say to be categorically uninterested in trans women, and, um, so she re, uh, she reblogged it, um, being like, this is lesbophobic. And so I was, like, harassed for, by, like, a bunch of Tumblr terms for a while about, um, about my lesbophobia, um, and, you know, uh, a yeah, some of the uh, some of those like um, some of my my local trans punks sort of came to my defense. Um, right. One of them, um, an absolute sweetheart, um, uh, with a tendency towards over the topness, um, in coming to my defense, actually changed her Tumblr handle to lesbophobic.tumblr.com. <laughs> I have to say that was my immediate response too. I was like, well, fuck, I'm lesbophobic, I guess. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, was, it was great um, in that sense. But, uh, and yeah, this person, um, the the person who said called me out for this actually later apologized to me. Um, and she, it was a, there's a lot of ways in which this person's like life is complicated, um, far m and far more than I than I'm gonna get into. But um, at this point, um, she sent me this message that was like, "Hey, I'm really sorry for how I I I treated you back then. Um, I was at a place where I could only perceive of womanhood, and I could only perceive of you know my gender as." Um, as the signifier of this violence, of, of right. gendered violence towards me, and I was angry at you um, in a perception of... Or I was, I was angry at you because I was angry that anyone would choose to be a woman. Right? Um... And that was, I mean, that was half of the message. The other half of the message was, also, I'm converting to Islam. Do you want all my old clothes? For this, like, white girl from Poolsville, Maryland, <laughs> which is... Okay. Um, yeah, so, like, there's all sorts of, 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 um, of messy things there. Although, um, if you're, if you're listening to this, um... <laughs> I, I would like you to know that I think you're a very uh, very sweet person, um, and I really appreciate you reaching out to me at that time. Um, and 
Um, yeah, so, so that was my, my most sort of direct encounter with that. Um, I mean, I guess one th other question I would have about it is like, that makes a lot, of, that all makes sense to me. I, so I, I have two questions. All makes sense to me. But like, and I get that you're sort of dividing off a sort of analytical framework about gender from like what your own experiences are necessarily. Um, so not trying to push you there, but like, how does it map on to your like seemingly multiple and positive experiences with like trans men, like, you know, people who are men? Um, and how do you think about that? That's one question. And, um, yeah, okay, maybe I'll save my other question for a second. That's a very good question. That's a very good question, and um, if I'm totally candid, that's probably the first question you have asked that I have not already had an answer to. <laughs> um, okay. That's interesting. You're you're wonderful. You're a wonderful <laughs> um, I want to say, before the interview, I specifically asked like. I was like, I think this will be the, this will be the most, uh, this will, the, the output of this will be best if you can, um, ask me questions that I haven't already self-narrativized, that I, that I don't already have an answer to, um, so I, I really appreciate being put on the spot about that, um, and... It's weird. It's weird, um... <coughs> it's weird because... My first answer to it... Is that I haven't had a lot of good experiences with trans men. And I say that, I say that as the, the very immediate, intuitive answer, um, but, and, but I deliver that sort of with the, with the caveat that there is a school of sort of trans feminism that sees trans men and, um, and even, and even like, um, AFAB non-binary people as sort of the enemy within the queer community. Um, and it annoys the shit out of me. Um, I, I, I think it's really incorrect and, and, um, theoretically untenable and leads to some really, really bad practice. Um, but also I haven't had a lot of good experiences with, with trans men and I have had a lot of good experiences with with non-binary people, with, mm. um, with trans-masculine non-binary people who specifically don't identify as men. Although I've also had a lot of, a lot of bad experiences with, with people like that, um, <laughs> too, if I'm being totally honest, but, um, to the extent that I have had good experiences with, with trans-masculine people, that's, that's where it is, um... And 
I'm trying to think of why exactly this is, right? Um, and so I'm sort of cycling through my head here the, the list of the, the, the trans masks I've been friends with in my life, um, or I've been close with. Um, and... men to you for you hmm? it is men it, it, it is it is men well and I think I don't have a good answer to, the, to that question but an observation that I would counterpose is that it seems a lot of trans men and trans masculine people, you know, and, and AFAB non-binary people, whatever, whatever terminology we're using. Um, I think a lot of those people have problems with trans men too, in a certain way. Um, and you know, I, I, I'm speaking for myself, I have problems with all kinds of people. But That's true. Yeah, many, I, many of I, them are men. I, I absolutely have problems with, with a lot of trans women. Um, but <laughs> sir, I'll, I'll be honest. But to be fair, my, my, I'm an AFAB non-binary person. Yeah. My very best friend in the world is a trans man. Um, well, and the 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 this this I don't want to say there's a very interesting article, um, because the article I'm referencing I have not read. Um, and, um, but I, I've been meaning to read it forever, and I know it's very interesting. Um, it's a, it's an essay by, um, a trans man who, um, actually has, see, this is the problem, is that this is someone who has... been a recurring character and all this other stuff right. and that I've deliberately left nameless right. and now if I want to reference an essay he wrote and published I have to out him by I have to I have to Are you talking um, about Noah? Yes I am talking about Okay. <laughs> cool. Thank you for doing that so I didn't have to. I think um, Noah's essay came up in another interview that I did maybe for this. Oh wow. Okay, yes. Yeah. So um Noah's Zanis, um who in the story so far has been first the person who um First, the president of my high school GSA. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, oh, first, the okay. president of my high school GSA. Then, later on, um, introduced me, um, radicalized me, got me into anarchism, introduced me to um, the local punk scene and all of the wow. queers and trans people therein. Um, later on, moved to New York, and also we had a falling out at some point. Um, that we sort of have made up, but we haven't hung out really much since. Um, uh, sort of based around um, 
based around like another person who I am not gonna get into because there's too much going on and I don't think would cover any particularly interesting or new theoretical ground here. Um, but you know, someone in spaces that we were both in that um, had been that that I think has has been really harmful for a lot of ways, and I I, I don't like I I really don't like to cancel people. You mean we both, or you Noah and you both? Um, or, or all of the above. I guess all of the above okay. actually. I'll say. I, uh, but basically, <laughs> basically someone who I was canceling and said I I don't want people hanging out with this person right. and Noah being uh, Noah Noah wanting to hang out with with them, which I I want to stress I I'm as I'm saying this, it's not an indictment of Noah. Mm-hmm. Um. So, anyway, now that we've established it, it's an article by Noah Zizanis, um, um, called, I think, um, On Hating Men and Becoming One Anyway, mm-hmm. um, which, again, I haven't read, um, but understand intuitively just from the title in a certain way, um, And and there's, you know, I think that there's very much something, you know, so I, I say that I have problems with trans women sometimes. The problems that I have with trans, that I have with trans women and the problems that cis women tend to have with trans women um, are very, very, very different. I think the problems I've had with trans men and the problems trans men have with trans men align, right? Um, and it's, it's essentially, uh, the, the way I think of it sort of comes to, I, I don't think that masculinity or being a man or identifying as a man is a sign of any inherent fucked upness about a person. But I think I think there's a very real extent where if in the process of socialization, this sort of totality of socialization, if you learn how to be a man sort of correctly mm-hmm. in this archetypal normative sense that, lo- that looms over us, mm-hmm. you will be a bad person I think I want to say inevitably. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm very nervous about saying that in, in a very categorical kind of way. And, um, I don't know that I can theoretically justify saying it in an, in an, in a categorical kind of way like that. Um, but essentially where I, where I think, where I think I have to sort of fall on transmasculinity in related to, to a lot of this is that
any man who is a good person is, in a certain sense, a failure of a man. Right? You have to, to be a man and to be a, a good person, at some point, you have to fail masculinity. That said, I think the same thing is true about women, in that a sense. That was going to be my next question. I think the same thing is true about women, mm -hmm. because I think what you have, if you have a woman who doesn't fail femininity, mm -hmm. the woman that doesn't fail femininity is something that can only exist in relationship to the man who doesn't fail masculinity, right? And in a, in a sense, like, the woman that doesn't fail mas that the woman that doesn't fail at being a woman is, like, Ivanka Trump. And... Even she probably doesn't quite get it right, but and yeah. yeah. well, and the, I mean, the question is, yeah. of course, in a, in, a, <laughs> in a certain sense, you can... Everyone, everyone fails masculinity and, and femininity as such. Um... Some are more equal than others, though. But, yeah, some, some fail harder than others, right? Um, and... So, so, but the, the sort of ideal woman here can only exist in relation to the ideal man. Um, but what's different is that... Women... Are much more comfortable than men with failing at their gender. And that's, um, I mean, that's a, a pretty broad thing to say. Um, and maybe even something I, I don't know if I can justify theoretically. But what, really what I mean is, I don't know, there's, there's, there's a component to this which is very well documented. Mm -hmm. Um, and one that is even used by by people who hold very theoretically untenable positions of, you know, the, the transmasculine person as the enemy within the queer community, um, you know, those people sort of like to talk about um, the way that transmisogyny is a unique phenomenon, um, and sort of the way that... Um, the way that it's a lot easier to get away with being a tomboy than it is to get away with being a sissy. Even if it's, there are a lot of... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and if, if you have good politics, you, you know that there's, of course, a lot of ways even that you can't get away with being a tomboy. Um, but I, it, it, this holds nonetheless, right? Um... And I think what it sort of comes to is that in relation to the masculine violence that exists in the world, in relation to the masculine violence that exists in the world, 
the violent masculinity that exists in the world is always doing everything it can to avoid thinking about the possibility that it might be a failure of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It has everything to do with it. And, and a lot of times it, you know, sort of tomboys and, and sort of masculine women and then trans masculine people, um, and, and masculine trans people and, and trans men, um, A lot of times, not always, um, it, because it it is because of because of the complexities and, and the nuance of this. Mm -hmm. Lesbians too, I'll even say in this um, are sort Watch of it now. all. Hmm? We're heading into lesbophobia territory. <laughs> um, well, what I'll, what I'll say is that those positions coming into contact with those positions um, less forces um, the violent man it less forces the violent man to be aware of the possibility of his own failure at masculinity. Mm -hmm. Right? While the sissy, the trans woman, The, the violent man can't look at that, can't exist in relation to that without being intensely aware of the possibility of, of, of the possibility of his failure at masculinity, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, so the... And, and so to sort of think very sort of practically about where people sort of end up, because um, I, I, I think it's worthwhile to get away from where people start out um, in transition processes because um, it can get easy to get stuck there because that's where the violent men were considering, that that's all the violent men we're talking about care about. Um, a lot of the time, but I, I, I think we can, it's, I think getting stuck there is part of a lot of this sort of theoretical traps that lead to very, um, indefensible positions about this mm -hmm. stuff. Um, to sort of think of more of where people end up, um, later on in transition, um, in relationship to society with this, um... I think there's something also, I don't know, I'm, I'm not, I haven't quite worked out how this is related, um, but I, I'm, I, I think sort of the Freudian category of the phallic woman. Um, and this is actually something I was just thinking about. Um, this is something I was just thinking about like yesterday. This is great. Um, because I was talking to you, a uh, previously mentioned dear friend who's into psychoanalysis, mm -hmm. and um, a phenomenon 
a very real phenomenon is um, trans women transitioning, trying to sort of purge everything masculine about themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Have to go full hard femme all the time. And then later on in transition, sort of um, being comfortable taking up more space, even at the risk of being the transsexual bogeyman that turfs are afraid of. Um, And sort of being comfortable not having bottom surgery, being more comfortable with maybe not having bottom surgery, Mm -hmm. being more comfortable um, being phallic women. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I was thinking about this and thinking about recent experiences I've had with the way, you know, so for me, I'm, I'm sort of the, uh, the legendary, the mythical trans woman of color you've heard so much about, <laughs> right? <laughs> Instead of being that and, um the experience of people, a very wide coalition of gender and racial identities who are not that, being too excited about it. Yeah. Um, in a certain way. And... You know, uh, a particular experience I had, um, I was giving a speech at a, at a recent, um, protest here in, in New York, and, um, and, um, I was talking about, the speech was sort of on the topic of, of, um, safety and sort of a, a meta understanding of we have to keep our, ourselves safe with, it's really good without, speech, by the way. Uh, thank you. Without uh, recourse to the police, and in this, I, I, um, you know, I, I talk about violence I experienced as a trans woman of color, and when I said I am a trans woman of color in this speech, uh, when, or when I said I am a black trans woman, um, I got this like huge extended applause, much more so than any other point I made in the speech, and I think more so than anything in any of the other people's speeches at the same time. Okay, I'm going to stop right there, and I'm going to push you on this a little bit, which is, because there's a context to that. The first part of the context is, you gave a speech at a rally previously, and immediately following you giving a speech, and also immediately following another activist giving a speech who is a cis woman, but who is um, light-skinned black woman, or biracial, depending on how you would what she says both things anyway and then a third black woman got up and gave a speech and said as the first black woman to speak and so she immediately kind of negated both your womanhood and this other person's blackness in, in saying that and it was something that like I think at least some of the people present were aware of that having happened in the first place you certainly were aware of it having happened in the first place and I've watched a video of your speech and you delivered that line as a as a kind of declaration, not as an observation, but as a 
statement of fact that you're not going to let that particular kind of negation follow you again. So yes, absolutely. People cheered this, in response it, this was to that. Absolute, well, and this absolutely was after that first march, or after that first uh, protest, um, I deliberately was like, all right, I have to work. Yeah, because my speech was initially about how people need to stop, need to stop snitching on their neighbors for fireworks. <laughs> um, I was like, shit, I have to work something about my, my gender in here, so just like, so I don't have to worry about getting misgendered right, right? right. Um, well, and, um, and, and I, I really want to stress that I'm not trying to con- condemn, um, or implicate any of my, any of my audience here. Um... Well, you could. I just want to give it a bigger one. Well, I could, but I, I actually think the sort of implication there um, is something I want to push against a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, because the, you know, this is, of course, sort of a documented phenomenon, right? And uh, you know, this sort of fetishism of, of trans women of color in, 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 in these queer and in these radical social spaces. Um, this is, this is pretty documented and, you know, it, it's talked about, um, it's very often talked about in these sort of morally condemning terms, right? Um, where it's these terms of It's talked about, the, the sort of prevailing theoretical narrative of it is that people sort of fetishize black trans women in this way because, um, the, the two kind of prevailing explanations are to virtue signal themselves mm-hmm. as, um, standing for the, the most oppressed um, social, uh, categories, um, and, um, less common, but sort of still common is a theoretical understanding of this as sort of a fetishization of trans pain, mm-hmm. um, and that is, of course, a phenomenon, is this, the, the uh, this kind of liberal fetish, uh, fetishization, um, uh, sort of similar to, like, like, the way people talk about, like, disability porn, right, of, like, wow, oh my god, like, so hashtag inspiring. Um, but there's, a, I think, another element to this that hasn't really been talked about. Um, and I noticed this um, a couple days after that. Um, I was um, in another um, sort of radical and activist space um, talking at length with... a cis woman who, if I'm being totally honest, I think might not be a cis woman. Um, (laughs) um, and, and, um, you know, she was talking to me, she was complaining to me, um, about how in that space she'd felt very much, um, dominated by a multi uh, a multiracial coalition of men with less radical politics than her. And this is a, you know, a cis white woman talking about this, right? 
I understand, ostensibly, so, uh, white women talking about this. Um, and, um, in this coalition of, of, of people with, um, with less radical politics, and she, she was very excited about my being there. She was very excited about my being there. Um, and, and, and this was only like the second time we'd hung out. The, the first time we hung out was meeting at a protest and, um, being like, And, and being part of a larger group of people where we all sort of at the same time realized, wait a minute, we're more radical than everyone else. Here. Right, right. Let's hang out. Um, and then, um, you know, we were, in a, we were in a single group chat together that came from that. And my, most of my interaction in that group chat, if I'm uh, being honest, is dispelling people of fireworks-related conspiracy theories. <laughs> um, oh, no. And sort of being a voice of reason um, among people freaking out about that, um, and, um, and so this is the second time we've, we've really hung out, um, and, and she's really excited about me being there, um, and she's excited, the, so the excitement was, She was excited about me being able to trump other people when she's fighting with them. Yes, exactly. Me being able to trump other people when she's fighting with them. She's excited about me, and and part of that has to do with maybe part of that is sort of maybe exploiting the um, the other reasons of the trans woman of color fetish in other people there, mm -hmm. right? Um, Instead of exploiting that, um... But it repeats it as well. Well, and it, it repeats it as well. Um... Personally, I am, like, very actively more than happy to exploit that <laughs> every time it's necessary. I believe my exploitation of it, um... Or I, I, you know, I believe the theoretical positions that lead to it are wrong. Right. Um... But the fact of the matter is that a lot of people really buy into them, and holy shit, and am I, am I glad to take advantage of that anytime I get the chance, right? Um, or any anytime I, it accomplishes something for me um, that, that I think is worth accomplishing. Um, so I, I kind of take sort of a, you know, a, a dirty tactic, real politic approach about that. Um, um, and so, so that's part of it, but... Something I realized is part of that is sort of coming from cis women um, it's I think it's not just that she wanted me to sort of exploit my identity to agree with her. Uh, although she definitely did, and so did I. Um, <laughs> because I agreed with her, right? right? Um, but I think there's an element of it that's, like, in this space, she had, an ex in an extended period of time, sort of been a 
sort of acting as a phallic woman, right? Being taking up a lot of social space right. and being very, very upfront and aggressive um, about her opinions and had received a lot of backlash around it. Um, and and at this point was, was feeling very, very burnt out in that space mm-hmm. um, in ways that sort of come from, I think, the way a lot of cis women never quite, never learn to, or, or sort of specifically, I should say, specifically learn not to be the phallic woman, mm-hmm. right? And people don't like you when you do. Yeah, yeah, because, because people don't, people don't like the phallic woman, right? Um, and I think there's a part of that then where I think she wanted me to be the phallic woman. So she, because she was exhausted by it, mm-hmm. right? She wanted me to be the phallic woman. So let me ask you something else about that, which is we started out a little bit earlier talking about racial identity. We didn't go very far with that, but it occurs to me, and this is again, not a very little bit of an instructive question, but like, Blackness has something to do with that, too. I think, like, cis black women often get perceived in this in similar ways of being aggressive or being not feminine and, and advocating, right, for themselves in all sorts of public spaces and that being something that makes you not well-liked but is a necessary thing for people to do. And I'm just curious, both kind of, like, how all this shit relates to how do you think about race and general now and identity but also how do you think about yourself in relationship to that now and how does that connect back to some of this stuff that's a good question that's a hard question to answer um and you know i think it's it it's of course very well documented that black women are um perceived as phallic women as phallic women regardless of what they do in a lot of cases um Something that is also true of trans women, um, and sort of is at the heart of perhaps this phenomenon, um, and I'll say this is this is weird for me because this is part this I think that's where I really am sort of forced to address the fact that I'm black um, and separately from the fact that I you know as I said uh, a couple hours ago I was I for a time growing up, I was very, like, racist against black people, um, and everyone else besides, um, something that is related to that, but that I didn't quite get into is, is... Can I interject an observation? Yes. So your mom's white and you're a black woman, so you don't have a black woman 
as a role model to think about how to be a black woman. That's absolutely true. That's uh, that's been a big component of um, my my life going into tr- in, into transition is only knowing how to be a white woman in a certain sense. Um, and well, and, and I think that's very related to um, what I was about to say, which is that for most of my life, I knew very very few black people. I knew very, very black people and was close with even fewer still. Um, and that's something that, you know, more recently in my adult life um, is changing. Um, but... You know, uh, even even getting into you know forming radical political opinions, my 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 relationship to you know my my figuring out I was a trans woman existed in a context of both having theory about transness and having actually existing trans people to talk to. Um, whereas my sort of theory, re- really my theory about race, like my, my understanding of race in connection to class, in connection to gender, so much of that was kind of formed in a vacuum of pure theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and how much of how to understand my own race is a vacuum of, of theory. Um, and having uncomfortable racial experiences, but being so enculturated into whiteness mm-hmm. as to... To dismiss your gaslight yourself. Essentially, yeah. This is something, um, Jesus, yeah. my, my partner, um, hates my mom. <laughs> and for, for a number of reasons. Um, and... Yeah, one of them, uh, my mom, part of, part of even thinking about this with my mom is not just that my mom is white, but my mom is Israeli and knows fucking nothing about the history of race in the United States. Um, and you know, when I was a child, periodically I would get haircuts and I would always just go like, I I had an afro, that's what my hair naturally does when I just let it exist. Um, and I would, I would just shave it down to, to, um, a step above bald and start over. Um, and, you know, every time I would, I would get buzzed, uh, every time my mom would buzz me, she would tell me I looked like a monkey. And she had, like, no fucking, fucking awareness. Like, dead ass. She would say that to me. And, like, even, like, in adulthood, I was like, Mom, that's kind of weird, right? Did you ever ask her what, about it? You asked her? What she's like, and she's like, oh, it never occurred to me that that would have anything to do with race. Like I'd want to kill your mom right now. I'm just just like, like the purest ignorance. Like oh my god. Can I just? This is not my interview, but some, when tonight I was a small baby, somebody gave me a like a monkey onesie for her and like monkey towels, and I like I like I like I was so embarrassed. This person, there was nobody else watching me open it. They just shipped it to me, you know, on Amazon. So I was alone when I opened it. Nobody ever saw it. I, of course, immediately like threw it away. But my sense of just like. I'm, I was embarrassed for the person that sent it to me that they didn't realize that this would be like not an appropriate fucking thing. Like, find me one black parent who has their black child in a monkey onesie, onesie 
walking around Brooklyn. Yeah. You won't find them. Maybe you will, but no, you won't. Like, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's, it's nuts, right? Fuck. It's, it's unbelievable, right? Um, she might be Israeli too, but she's a, she's a professor with a PhD. She must know somebody somewhere that knows something. Like, come on. If she wanted to know that information, she could know that information. That was available to her. I, I don't know how you get a degree in <laughs> urban planning, doing research in Ghana. Like, what? Oh, my God. She she baffled me. I, I, I really don't understand my mother. <laughs> um, not that many people do. Um, understand their mothers, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not that many people understand their mothers. Um... Um, yes, yeah, so... So when did you start thinking of yourself as black? Relatively recently. I mean, I I never thought I wasn't black. Mm -hmm. But I never thought I was black. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and yeah, again, I, in high school I was an Oreo. Right? You know, black on the outside, white on the inside. Yeah, right? I mean, you can always be an Oreo if you're black, so there's that. But yeah. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> yeah, probably that, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, so I, I relatively recently, um, in life, um, and a lot of it, it is very interesting. A lot of it has to do with um, music, um, and kind of the ways I, I learned to be black in relationship to music, um, which already am. Um, I'm I'm a multi instrumentalist. I play a bunch of a bunch of instruments. I can't believe and it's hour three, and we're only getting to the part where you're a musical genius. <laughs> Well, and, and, you know, part of why I learned multiple instruments ties into the fact that I was a very socially isolated child, mm -hmm. and I wanted to be in a heavy metal band and play a lot of Slayer songs with people, um, but no one wanted to be in a fucking band with me, so I was like, oh, screw you guys, I'll learn all, my, all the instruments on my own. Um, and that was to be your own heavy metal band? Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. Um... Yeah, and, and, so sort of learning about my, my blackness in relationship to music, um, I can't quite say sort of when I became black through music, um, I can pinpoint a number of elements <laughs> of it, um, in sort of a scattered and um, isolated kind of way. So I can think of, um, this is one that intersects with, with, uh, dysphoria, is I can think of, um, an experience in college listening to Drake and mm. being really, um, actually I should say even in high school, um, my virile anti-black racism very much extended to music. I was, like, super, like, the only good bands are heavy metal bands. Everything else is pop garbage. Rap isn't music. Like this Ben Shapiro sucks. level. Yeah, Ben Shapiro level mm. takes on music. Um, and 
Um, so, of course, becoming a good person um, meant being a little more thoughtful about that. And the reward is you get to listen to good music. <laughs> yeah, right? So, so, so this particular experience I'm thinking is um, listening to Drake. Um, and... Um, um, I still haven't quite worked through this all the way theoretically, if I'm being honest, but... Mm -hmm. Um, perceiving in Drake's music and in in R and B more generally, sort of um, a kind of smoothness, mm. um, a kind of smoothness. Um, you know, the I remember once getting my uh, going to get a haircut uh, and get my locks twisted, and the guy like without even really asking, just kind of gave me this, like, sort of smooth, crisp-cut man, like, black male fashion sort of fade sort of thing. And it was the most upset I've ever been about a haircut in my life. Um, and... It is totally the sort of haircut Drake would get, right? Um, and, and... Hearing, hearing in, in a lot of R&B, in a lot of modern R&B, this is smooth... Yeah. ...character... And feeling like absolute garbage about it, feeling because because that kind of in a way it sort of signifies people it signifies to people that they can assume you as a complete person, and that is something to which I felt and in some ways still do feel very foreclosed. Um, and I'm, I'm attracted to music that's not well polished in a certain way. I'm attracted to a lot of music that's you know, very rough around the edges um, and and flawed because Drake Drake is flawed, but Drake is so unflawed about his flaws. At least in how Drake presents Drake. Now we can know better and know that Drake is a creep who grooms people, um, but. I'm just thinking about the music part, and you know a lot more about music than I do, but this, this, this is a really is, interesting proposition yeah. to me, and that's one I probably have to say with a Well, and it's, I, I, I haven't, as... I think I very strongly disagree with you about the associations that you're making here, but I, I'm going to have to think about it a little bit. Okay, cool, because <laughs> I, I, if you can, I know that there's a real phenomenon at this, and I've thought about this for years, and I'm, like, barely any closer to figuring out what exactly that real phenomenon <laughs> is. So, at, at, at that specifically, um, any insight you have, I'll appreciate. Um, but to, to switch away from that and to mm -hmm. answer more, uh, to continue sort of spitballing, becoming black through music, mm -hmm. um, for me, um... You know, I think other elements of that I think of, um, you know, I, I, I played piano as a child and I gained a lot of technical skills as a pianist. Um, I was never into jazz, um, but, um, towards the end of college I got a, uh, I got a gig, and it was a regular, like, weekly gig, um, at a bougie French restaurant. Playing background music, and I got the job on Monday, and I had to be there to play Friday night for four hours, right? 
And I was like, shit, am I going to learn four hours of music, of sheet music to play in the, no, in the next week? Improvise. Yeah, or am I going to <laughs> give myself an aggressive four-day crash course on um, passable jazz improvisation? <laughs> um, even though I don't really listen to jazz at all. Like, oh um, and so I did that. And, wow. and so I... I, I Wait, stop it for a second. What the fuck was the four-day course on jazz improvisation? Oh, that it was not an actual course. That no, people like, what, yeah, what, what, what did you course. do? Yeah. Oh, well, it was, I, I knew the principle of jazz. Yeah, I knew, I, yeah, I, yeah. I knew the music theory of you improvise over these chord changes. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, um, had the technical facility to, right. to do some of that improvisation just by sort of m- m- miming a lot of like scale patterns and such that I, I that I had practiced as a classical musician, right? Yeah. And so it was just like I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna practice bullshitting it until I'm sort of good at it. Um, and what songs did you play the first time? Um, it was all the standards. Um, yeah. On, standards that are very very that like every jazz musician right. knows, but right. that I hadn't even heard. I was doing it out of, um, it's funny, I was, I was doing it, um, out of a real book, um, yeah. right, which for, for listener context, um, is, in the history of jazz, first everyone learned things by ear, and then people started, like, making their own charts, and, like, these, they'd have these improvised, they're called fake books, these, like, hacked together books of just, like, your own charts of all these jazz standards, in case you forget one and you need to pull it out, um, then, um... I pause for one second yes. and say the, the, the phrase fake book has never struck me as, like, theoretically interesting until right now. And oh, it's so now interesting. It is. Yeah. Um, well, well, yeah. and, and the yeah. history of, the history of that is that, um, you know, um, some white Berkeley professors, um, got together with... Hal Leonard, the major music public uh, major music publisher, and bought the rights to make to publish sheet music of all of these hundreds of jazz standards and published them as the real book. Um, And um, it's become kind of a shibboleth in the jazz community, where it's like, especially older jazz people will really look down on you if you're reading out of a out of a real book. Because um, it's like, what, you haven't listened, you haven't listened to the music. Right, you don't know um, shit. Yeah, exactly. It's, it sort of signifies not respecting the tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, even that has its own complicated history because of how much of that started as um, basically trying to make all the white jazz musicians feel uncomfortable so they'd go away. Because <laughs> it's purpose, right? I mean, um, right, yeah, which, yeah, yeah, which is, what the fuck, the, 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 this whole history of jazz. Um... And, right, and so, so, anyway, from a real book, um, I learned to play all these jazz standards exactly the way that is, like, disrespectful to this tradition, and not, not in an ensemble context, this is a solo performer that's playing for four hours straight every Friday and Saturday night, and, and I did this for a couple years, and, um... And people really liked it. The audiences tended to really enjoy it. Right. Um, even I, over time, I think I got to the point where I could say, okay, I'm actually a competent jazz improviser. Right, right. For the first several months of me doing it, I was not. Yeah, right. Right? I, I was barely hacking it together. Um, <laughs> but 
I was. <laughs> I really love the story though. But I right. But I was I was performing at a bougie French restaurant <laughs> in Frederick, Maryland, right. to people who don't know the difference. Right. Because for all the disrespect for the tradition, there's something very jazz about the entire project of like having to learn how to play jazz <laughs> in like four want, days. Four yeah. days because you want a standard gig. Like that's. For sure, part of the history of this entire yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And also, like whatever bougie idiot white people like it, duh. Like yeah, right. And 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 um, you know, they really did like it. I would, my I was making twenty an hour, and sometimes my tips would be more than my wages. Right. So like you're also a really good musician, so I'm sure it was sounding good. Um. So that is so. So, you know, through all that, um, of course that's that's very weirdly and. An, an encounter of blackness, right? Of um, being, of, of learning to be black by being the minstrel show, instead of being the monkey show for all these white people. The most, I, I really, really vividly remember um, one white lady, one like old ass white lady, she was there with her family and she was like, she was someone's grandma, and you could tell that her uh, her kids are like kind of Wanting embarrassed away, about their, right? their 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 grandma, who was like, like, you people have such natural rhythm, oh, like, no. <laughs> oh, oh my no. god, yeah. Um, and meanwhile, you're it's like, this is nothing natural about this. I don't know how to play jazz, and I'm like, <laughs> like, what do I do? Yeah, here? Um, yeah. Because anyway. Well, and of course, on the other hand, me being, there also being an element to which I do have a, a natural inclination towards really rhythmic things. Right. Um, you know, I grew up uh, first on classical music and then on heavy metal because I really liked the rhythmic aggression specifically right. of, of metal, among other things. Um, so I'd have a, a drink of water. Right. Um, So that's a moment, and then, um... But, like, wait, hold, pause for a second. I want to go back to the Drake right. and the, the smoothness thing and the idea of, like, what it is, what blackness is. What I took from that comment a little bit is, like, what blackness is is that people think they know about you when they look at you. That they think they, think they know everything about you when they look at you. And that I don't want that to be me. And, like, here's this example of this racist white lady doing exactly that to you. But you also just told a story about how that appearance always... I mean, or at least always in the story, but in general, always belies like a whole bunch of other shit that has nothing to do with, like what is what appears is not actually. We don't actually know everything about Drake, and also Drake is like a weird, complicated biracial Canadian. I mean, for all his creepiness, like it's not actually the case that Drake is some sort of unproblematically authentically black person. This is clearly a yeah. Well, and I presentation right. So much of my uncom my discomfort with blackness, with with sort of perceiving myself as black, is when you are sort of so isolated from black community, and um, I really I really do feel about like black community the way a lot of the way a lot of people the way a lot of queer people I think feel about queer community where it's like something that didn't exist at all when they were a kid and um that they found later in life yeah and i almost feel like the opposite of that for me in certain ways yeah um that makes sense actually um you know the the opposite of that where i i had queer community from a regular uh, young age but black community is something that's taken me a lot longer to find 
Um, and um, you know, I I I talked about getting that haircut. Um, yeah. The after that haircut, um, I went to work at this restaurant. And my white male boss made fun of my haircut. <laughs> Which is like, doesn't that just fucking take the cake? Um, well, and, and so, so in isolation from, from black community, um, in isolation from black community, you sort of look at the blackness of you know black black figures in music and in a weird way there is in a lot of how how blackness is presented in black music that's popular with white audiences yes this is back to our chris rock Exactly. Yeah, black black people who are popular with white audiences, right? It, there's it's, there's a very weird perfection. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Right. There's this, um, and and so what I you know what I perceive as this sort of smoothness I hear I hear in Drake um, that I feel foreclosed to is that sort of perfection mm-hmm. um and that's what I, what I think I really meant when I said completeness right um but also something that I that I felt very foreclosed to is sensuality right mm-hmm. I think that's part of it I think that's really might even be at the sort of psychoanalytic core of this is that I don't know if Drake has ever once in his life been embarrassed about being horny. I mean, I'm sure he has, but like the public, the the Drake, the the public Drake, right? The the public Drake, the public image of of Drake has never, ever (coughs) been embarrassed about being horny. And, you know, this all ties to sort of perceptions of black people as being more sexual by nature um and um and it is 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 of course part of this um and then the way that that yeah so drake is just the ideal example of this because there you can see how that lines up with masculinity in this way right um where and where it ends up with Drake is being this fucking like gaslighty dude who calls you up after breaking up with you and is like, I know you've been real lonely since we broke up. Like, and he's just real, like, of course he's, you know, he's vulnerable. Drake's music is so right, vulnerable, no, it's, it's, but know. it's so invulnerable about right, it. Right, yeah. Right? It's, it's, he's never embarrassed. Um. Mm-hmm. In a way that other artists are are embarrassed, and they deal with that. They they have to deal with it. It it 
shows in the music in a certain way sometimes. Um, I mean, that, I, I, also, maybe it's a good reason why Drake is a bad example of black music as a tradition. Well, absolutely. Um, well, absolutely. And... Because there's multiple kinds of perfectionism. Like, like I'm, a, I'm obviously a Prince fan. And, like, Prince is very much, like, a perfectionist in a lot of ways. But, like, maybe not in the way that you're talking about. Like, there's a yeah. lot of wild shit in Prince songs that, like, don't doesn't make any sense. But the songs themselves are quite rendered in exactly the way that Prince wants them to be rendered, I guess. But. Yeah, Stevie Wonder, actually, is a figure. Um, I, I, I do love Prince, and I've listened to some Prince, certainly. But Stevie Wonder is um, someone more I've listened to quite yeah, a bit of. definitely. And, you know, I think of... Um, one of my favorite songs ever is, is Sir Duke. And the lyrics to that song are pretty silly. Like, they're ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, like, the lyrics to that song are super, are, are silly to me. And um, in an inescapable way. But, oh my god, do Great I song. feel such joy when I, <laughs> when I hear that song, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, totally. Yeah. Um... You know, Kanye, Kanye is messy. I know, I, I, I sort of, he's definitely my problematic favorite. Yeah, yeah, Kanye is, is so messy, right? Because, like, you know, you have your Kanye that's, that at least aesthetically is closer to something like Drake. Yeah. Um, but then you also have your Kanye that's, like... Calling himself Jesus in front of these Calling Kanye. himself Jesus, <laughs> saying slavery was a choice, right. saying poopity-scoopty-whoop, like... <laughs> Right? Like, um, yeah. And, and, and so then, and then other, other black artists I've, um, I've gotten into since then, um, ones that I feel at least are less part of the, less mainstream black artists yeah. I've gotten into are, um, are actually ones where, um, I find that their music aestheticizes blackness in a way that lines up with the ways it feels possible for me to aestheticize my own blackness. Yeah. Um, and I've been writing and, and discussing with some people recently, um, I've had some conversations about um, Afro-pessimism recently, mm -hmm. and... Um, Afro-pessimism, for me, is so hard to wrap my brain around theoretically, um, but really easy to, um, as soon as I can make musical... Aesthetically, mm -hmm. as soon as I can make musical analysis. I think it's an aesthetic it. argument more than anything. I mean, even as, at a theoretical level, I think it's an argument about aesthetics. But anyway... I think you're right about that. Yeah. I think you're correct that yeah. Afro-pessimism is sort of fundamentally an aesthetic argument. Um, but, like, like so one, one band um, that I engaged with this, um, and... Um, Actually, I wrote a paper about this band for um, a course I took at the Graduate Center on Critical Race Theory and Music. Did you send it to me? Um, I, I don't ask you to? think I did. I have um, some vague memory of this, but anyway, send it to me. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and so, so it's a paper about... So, so Zeal and Ardor, um, they're fronted by a, um, a mixed uh, black man, um, Manuel Ganyu. Um, who's, uh, who's Swiss, um, actually, but 
um, he's, it's a black metal band, right? And the idea is, you know, black metal, sort of Norwegian black metal, the sort of thing you associate with all the church burnings and, and such, um, is, um, the, a lot of their sort of internal narrativization of it is, like, um, is ethnic groups and, and sort of religious minorities in Norway who had a lot of history destroyed by, um, by, um, Southern Europe, or by, like, Central and Southern Europeans, by, like, specifically a lot of Germans, um, sort of coming in and saying, no, you all have to be Christians now, right? And, um, sort of imposing Lutheranism, um, and so this is sort of the founding sort of mythology, uh, a big part of the founding mythology of why all these Nords in the 90s wanted to burn all these churches, um, and with zeal and ardor, the idea is to say, who really wants to, who, who's, who's had Christianity violently imposed on them that might have a thing to say about right, it? Right, right, right. And right. might turn to Satanism about it, right? right? And so, um, and there's a lot of stuff in that music that's very, very interesting to me, um, aesthetically, um, and, and a lot of it relates, and, um, by sort of how it also shares with black metal, this sort of void, the, an abjection, um, it, it really ties to, um, some very emotionally compelling parts of Afro-pessimist thought, mm -hmm. um, which I, I get into the band, and then I'm like, oh, this band is, makes so much sense with, like, this sort of theoretical context right. for it, um, um, another artist I'm, I've recently been into is, um, Backwash, who is, um, a rapper from Montreal, um, a black trans woman, very, um... Anglophone or Francophone? Hmm? Is she Anglophone or Francophone? Um, she's Anglophone. Um, and associated with some noise musicians and, um, very much in sort of, um, a a kind of very aggressive, noisy, grimy kind of rap. Um, JPEG Mafia is a big influence on her for this. Um, I, he's also great. Um, and incidentally, this is a kind of rap that is, um, in, that is mimetically associated with trans women. Um, um, there is a, a meme of, of trans women being into death grips, um, which is where a lot of the current wave of that kind of stuff really starts um but so with backwash um also sort of tackles these um occult themes and she, she just dropped this incredible album called um god has nothing to do with this leave him out of it <laughs> and um she opens with um the 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 beat of the first song um is um based on a sample from the song Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath. Um, and it's Ozzy being like, oh, please, God, help me. Oh, please, God, instead of looped and, and made right. into this beat. And, oh, my God, it's... This album is, like, 22 minutes long. It's one gloss discography long. <laughs> it, 
I, I really recommend it to all listeners. Um, and there's another very excellent song on it that's uh, called uh, Into the Void, which is sort of about, like, um, social anxiety and social paranoia of this, like, and sort of dealing religiously and occultly with being fucking scared of everyone, which you have to be sometimes, or which you are sometimes a sort of condition of black transness. Um, and so, so a lot of my learning how to be a, a black woman then is sort of in relation to meaningful experiences of black music. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I have one more question, and even though we've been doing this forever, I cannot let you leave until I ask this question. Okay. Are you ready to leave? Um, I, 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 listen, I could, I could talk about myself for three more hours. Okay, so, um, I wanted to ask you, before I get to my last and final question, my second last question, which is, um, religion. Like, so I'm presuming that your mom was at least nominally Jewish, and you said your dad was at least nominally Muslim, but you've gotten into religion a little bit talking about um, music, and I guess I'm interested in how you thought about yourself religiously over the course of your life. Right, so my, um, my, it's, it's, it's kind of weird. I, I had a lot of religious freedom as a child. Not total religious freedom, um, certainly. So my mom, um, is really only Jewish, um, sort of culturally. She, uh, she identifies as agnostic. Um, my dad still identifies as Muslim as far as I know, um, sort of as a believing Muslim, but he, um, he does not practice consistently the way he once did. Uh, but my mom, like, and her mom before her were, like, always, like, no, 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 we're just Jewish as a, as a, basically as an ethnic identity, um, right. not as a religious practice. Um, and so my mom always told me that I could pick any religion I wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, I had, as many people do, I had a Wicca phase at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, um, actually before that I made up religion because... I, you know, I wanted adults to think I was cool. Um, and, <laughs> and you had to talk about stuff. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I, I, I made up a religion, um, and it was basically moon worship. Um, which, I think is really hilarious, given that there's at least a little bit, I mean, um, there's a, there's a poem I was very into for quite a while, um, in my adult life, um, uh, by um, a trans uh, trans woman, um, Joshua Jennifer Espinoza. Um, it's this great poem um, that's like, the moon is trans. Yeah, I've seen this. From this yeah. moment forward, the moon is trans. And, and it just goes on and on about this. And um, I think it's hilarious that you're, with me engaging in this and with me being trans later in life, that when I was 10, I like made up a moon worship religion. <laughs> um, and then, um, as I'm sure many people in the world have done, I, um, 
Also, we were visiting some family in Massachusetts, and we did sort of the tourist experience of Salem. And I got a book about Wicca in the, in the gift shop. So I was a Wiccan for a little bit. Um, basically until my dad found out. Um, and oh it turned out to be that um, my mom was like, that my mom and dad actually disagreed on this. Uh, and they, 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 they argued about this at the time even. Um, because it turned out um, that my mom's stance was you can be any religion you want. And, or or you can have no religion at all. And my dad's stance was you can have no religion at all or you can have any religion you want as long as it's Abrahamic. Yeah, okay. My dad's stance was you can pick any one of the Abrahamic religions. That seems <laughs> somewhat restrictive, but okay, dad. No paganism. Like, which is, which is kind of strange to think like you can pick any... Yeah, it's, it's very weird. Like, um, there were a lot of Mormons in my high school. Yeah. And um, I remember one girl I knew um, was from a Catholic family, right. and to hang out with her friends, basically, she converted to Mormonism in high school and got, like, kicked out by her parents, and I'm, like, Whoa. baffled by that a little bit. It's sort of so strange to me, and then I'm, like, what the fuck would my dad have done if I came and I said, okay, I can be any re Abrahamic religion I Mormon? want. I'm a Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> um, that would be a good troll. <laughs> yeah. Um, although I don't know if it would have flown all the way. Um, and I think, um, or so, so sort of, um, aside from that, um, <coughs> wait, I think tonight wants her cat. Tonight you can come get your cat. Would you like this, this beast? Here you go. Um, cool, as I say. <laughs> that you, you were going to troll your dad by becoming Mormon? Well, this is, this is a thought I, I had later on. Um, <laughs> not in time, Not apparently. at the time. Yeah, um, yeah so, um, I sort of stuck with that, um, and sort of a moon worship Wicca synthesis thing, um, right up until I was in high school and I discovered our atheism. Uh, <laughs> which, of course, is so consistent with everything else I've said about who right. I was in high school, right? right. Um, so I was, a, I was an edgy new atheist for a while, and it's weird because part of my relationships at the time, uh, or part of my relationships for a good while, um, you know, looking at aspects of what constitutes my type, I've mentioned that my type is... Um, uh, people that later on turn out to be trans and non-binary. Um, but also that my type, uh, something I, I didn't mention is that my type, um, also includes a lot of repressed Christian girls. Oh, yeah. Um, which is, um, I mean, certainly true of a lot of people I've dated who have gone on to be, um, wonderful. They can uh, be both things. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> wonderful, yeah. um, trans guys and non-binary people, um, you know, but, um, and, you know, there's a part of me that wants to say, okay, now this is, like, I want to have this power of my, part of it is sort of the, you know, this masculine enlightenment right, over right, these, right. 
I, I know better because I know of all the smarty. Right. Um, and that's definitely there. With my, with my um, ex, the one who's older than me that I talked about, that's a complicating factor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we first met um, was we got wasted and hooked up at a party. Right. Um, um, and... Um, and... Uh, I remember, like, the conversation we were having at the time, the conversation we had was very much about... W was about, like, how being atheist is cool, basically. Right, right. Um, with... They were, they were sort of talking about their, um, their repressed Southern Christian upbringing and then becoming a uh, sort of sexually libertine adult. Right. Um, and... Um, It's weird in that in that relationship the way that um, the way in which I sort of was the masculine the the figure of masculine authority even as I was in no position to have any kind of authority over this person seven years older than mm, me. Interesting. Um, yeah. But they, especially, they were coming out of a they were right about to realize that they were non-binary and yeah. coming out of a relationship. Uh, coming out of a yeah out of a out of a shitty relationship with this with a cis man um and like a, it was a it was a very very like normative like right. hetero wedding um and 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 this is my you know, my my ex had even w had a very hard time committing to atheism um until they were in the relationship right. and they they would really sort of focus on like despite all of my knowledge i still believe in miracles right mm -hmm. and i i can't get myself to stop and so then i was able to be the sort of masculine voice of authority of saying mm -hmm. miracles are bullshit right um and um, now I'm the phallic woman of miracles or bullshit, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Now I'm now I'm a materialist. Right? Except um, for there's, except for the ones that aren't, like the <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so yeah. So now um, um, I'm an atheist. I'm just not so into having an identity about it because yeah. I don't think it matters that much. Right. Um, and I'm I much prefer. Um, I'll say I I don't get. I, I get it. I I completely understand why some people would need it and be unable to get away from it, mm -hmm. and for that even to be a healthy thing. And I'm and um, I'd say I'm closer to um, I'm closer to maybe. Um, people who sort of think of, like, I don't need religion, I just need spirituality. Yeah. Um, I think, I, for, well, for me, it's not I need spirituality, even, it's I need therapy, right? Um, and, um... That's harsh, but true. That, is a, <laughs> that, that was a good read, sorry. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I need therapy. Well, and what I, 
what I think is maybe my current stance about it is I reject the idea that saying I don't need spirituality, I need therapy. I reject the idea that that in of itself is any less fictitious than any religious doctrine. Right. Right. I, I, I mean, I think in context, of course, there's a lot of, um, in, in practice, religion tends to lead to a lot of problems, um, as far as immaterialism, um, but, you know, therapy also, of course, can lead to immaterialism. God only knows, right? And, and so, God only knows, right? <laughs> That's the, the Freudian slip, I guess. Um, um, right, and so I, I think religion is just, is just, um, boneless therapy and therapy is just boneless religion <laughs> are both true and, um, that it's sort of then, it then becomes sort of an imperative to not be judgmental, um, of either until <coughs> the immaterialism that they both lend themselves to, right. um, becomes a problem. I think that makes sense. Do you think of yourself as ethnically Jewish? Um, yes, in so far as it doesn't really matter if I think of myself as that. Um, and it's, that's the way, I guess, um, that's sort of the blood quantum of it, is it doesn't matter because my mom is ethnically Jewish. So, um, it doesn't really matter whether I think of myself as such. The Nazis would definitely think you're ethnically Jewish. Exactly, right? Problems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I don't know how well I, uh, how, how, how much they like me. No. Um, well, that's good because the, the, I, 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 I know some leftists who hang out with conservatives and are able to sort of reconcile that and just to talk to them as such. I, it is, I so can't make myself do that, um, and the exception to that is I have pretty good relationships with my partner's parents, who at this point, who, who are, who are like, you know, rural white Trump voters. Right. Um, although they, 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 um... I, I, I don't want to cast them into this sort of very, uh, into sort of the traditional liberal thesis of what that looks like. Right. Um, you know, for reasons like, for example, they have, um, very, very strong and correct stances about things like sexual assault. Yeah. Um, and as such fall in with Trump only because they hate Clinton more. Right. Um. Well, and they're nice to you. And they love me. Yeah. I have a wonderful relationship with yeah. them. And they, you know, my, my partner is closeted, is, is not binary, is closeted to them, but, um, you know, it's, they, they adore me. They, yeah. and they adore me pretty much, I think at this point, they pretty much all the way know that I'm a black Jewish transgender communist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and they love me, right? Um, 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, actually, so that was my last question that I did want to ask to wrap things up was like, I, to tell me more about being a communist. Like, what kind of um, political organizations have you been a member of ever? Um, and I guess I'm including like left book shit in that. Like, I just want a little bit more of the actual story of your political trajectory. All right, the story of my political trajectory. Um, I basically jumped straight from liberalism into anarchism. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as I found out that anarchism was real and and that people I thought were cool were into it. Um, I had to shout out, uh, you're coming back up, Noah Zanis was like, you can be an anarchist. And I was like, I can? Yeah, all right. Why not, right? It says, like, very, um, kind of at a distance, um, a disinvestment, um, and so then, um, a lot of that gets into, you know, some people, and one person in particular who I was very close with, um, who I have since disassociated with, um, who, um, has been alluded to at previous points in time mm -hmm. in, in this, um, he is, um, you know, I mentioned with the sort of falling out that Noah and I had, um, over a specific person. This is that person. Uh -huh. Um, and this is someone who I was very, very close with and ended up being shitty in a lot of the ways that a lot of men are shitty. And I tried very hard to get them to stop and they refused, um, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they kept, they, they, they nominally accepted and they kept doing shitty things. Um, with the straw back being, um, of that being when they, like, uh, at the age of, I think, 21 or 22, started dating a 17-year-old, and, and, it's like a 17-year-old who was a, who sort of had graduated high school early, and was a freshman at the the college we both went to and who was like and 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 this person was like this you know this 17 year old is really mature for her age right um and all of these things that i very much remembered as rationalizations around my own relationship with a pretty similar age gap mm -hmm. um and um and so and this is this is a person who really got me into yeah. This is the first. This is the person who got me from anarchism into communism, and then from communism into theoretical rigor. Yeah. Um. And introduced me. You know, got me from anarchist punk scene to left book. Got um. It. And. Um. It's weird because this person was very formative for me in a lot of ways, um, of course, and I we really did agree on politics for a while, um, and then my trajectory was where where it ended up breaking, um, alongside these sort of ways in which this this guy was right shitty. Um, the real way it ended up breaking, um, politically was in his, 
Well, what was in was around questions of identity <coughs> politics. Uh huh. Yeah. Where um, I drifted towards Lee's Vogel and like sort of social reproduction theory and right. materialist feminism, and um, he drifted towards Chapo Trap House, um, which to contextualize um, for anyone listening who doesn't know what that is, um, it's a uh, actually, maybe maybe Kate, you can explain what Chapo is better than me. Um, it's a podcast that's very popular. That's supposedly about socialism, but isn't. Um, and is I don't know. It's kind of Bernie Bros with the podcast. There's, I actually have a lot more to say about Chapo Trap House, but I might save that for somebody else's interview. Um, <laughs> well, and, and it's class reductionist and social democratic and yeah, and, and sort of the class reductionism sort of specifically here is and and in the not knowing how to deal with the, not knowing how to deal with identity politics, right. and so just discarding them, yeah. um, in a way that, turns out, just makes you do a lot of shitty white dude stuff. Right. Um, right, and, you know, whenever, when everyone in the local scene canceled him for dating a 17-year-old, he was like, like, I don't understand all these people's SJW knee-jerk reaction about this. Um... Right? Um, it's a sort of... The pejorative critique of sort of a more li liberal identity politics applied to... Um, applied to people who were not liberals and who had some genuine problems with how he was interacting with the world. Um, and so that... That um, sort of friend breakup... Um, of course, also... Um, also really shaped a lot of stuff for me. As far as actual organizations, I was in an organization with this person. Um, it's called Red Party. Um, it I didn't a, know you were a member of Red Party. I was a member now of Red Party. It was a um, a short-lived um, a short-lived sect of internet communists spending basically spending all of their time. Um, drafting the constitution of um, the next society after this, the communist revolution and not really knowing anything about how to uh, make a revolution or really how to, how to do anything or have friends in the real world off the internet. Um, do you remember real quick like red, where Red Party came from? Because I, I, I know that it came from like basically, like one it has a common origin with Red Bloom, right? That in the sense that, uh, like, we there was a bunch of people, and I don't know if you were one of them or not, but who were in um, a couple of different left com groups that were all sort of anti having any parties. But then, like Maddie and a few other people started trying to like build little groups in different places, and Red Bloom was one of them, and there's a few other ones. Anyway, the origin of Red Bloom is that we got we got purged. From that form, that non-existent formation for Maoism and feminism and anti-racism and nationalism. And oh yeah, I do remember that things. they thought you were Maoist. Yeah, but um, Red Party, I think, was a next generation from that, right? That was like the kind of like Kautskyist regroupment of some. It of those was groups. definitely. Okay. It was like the sort of Kautskyian. Like it was is Kautskyist um, had a lot of overlap with like. Had had some overlap with like communist League of Tampa people, right? So that's who we, that's who purged us for being Maoists and 
Um, and actually, there's same. Um, it's funny because, um, as far as I know, the the person I'm shit talking here doesn't um, is no longer active in any um, actual organizing. What? But they ever were. Hmm. Assuming they ever were. Ass- yeah, assuming they ever were. Um, well, I mean, we did we did some like local organizing okay, together fair enough, um, fair enough. before before you know they got into Katsuki. So there there was some organizing on the, the local level. You know, they they were part of organizing like a, a Frederick Maryland Black Lives Matter march and and, okay. and and that sort of stuff. Um, but um, yeah, but but the, the the person I'm talking shit on, as far as I know, is no longer actually involved in any organizing, mm-hmm. but. I believe still is on one of the podcasts of these people that kicked out of, of basically the, the set of clicks that sort of kicked out Red Bloom. Um, I believe they they still have them on their on their pack on their podcast. Um, are we talking about Swampside Chats? We are talking about that podcast. I see. I keep like not knowing like how if I'm talking shit about people, how much. Should I say the name? Should I not say the name? You should say the name because I'll is, say the name. This is all going into the historical archive. Like nobody gives, a, nobody's gonna listen to this. Right all now. right. I mean, so anyway, I don't know, but like so for the grand historical archive, um, yeah, this is the podcast Swampside Chats, and Grant Gallagher is a piece of shit. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so beyond that, I I. That I that and, and and theoretical stuff is sort of what actually has formed my political opinions, and there's also parts that I'll say I don't think are fully formed. I don't yeah. know what the fuck I I I don't know what the fuck I actually think about a party, right? I who knows, right? It's you just gotta do shit and follow where the energy is, because um, if you don't have people who want to do things, it doesn't matter how how much you know. You're not going to be able to get people to do things, um, and getting people to do things dialectically, of course. Though getting um, it doesn't matter how many things you can get people to do if they're the wrong things. Um, <laughs> yes. That is that is I think a crucial point to try to remember. At yeah. All times. Yeah. Yes. So that's uh-huh. that's the that's the the dialectical view of it, right? Is that you know that's. Um, the, uh, the, the, the left wing of communism, as it were, this is, this is so reductionist of me to say it, to phrase it like this, but the left wing of communism say it doesn't matter, um, or the problem with the left wing of communism is that it doesn't matter, um, how many of the right things you know to do if you can't get people to do things. That's right, yeah. And the right wing of communism, uh, the problem for the right wing of communism is it doesn't matter how many things you can get people to do if they're the wrong things. I mean, I think there's um, a lot to be said for that formulation, reductionist, though, maybe. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't even necessarily say reductionist, but I, I will say it's oversimplified. Um, and there's a lot of situational nuances to it um, in specific organizations and, and movements at specific points of time. Um, and so, for a lot of that stuff, my answer is to say, I don't really know shit about fuck, but I'm, so I, I'm kind of winging it, right? Um, no one knows how to make a communism happen. We're all winging making communism. 
That's true. Um, and if indeed this is uh, the last question of this interview, uh, this is this is great. This is a great closer. I'm awesome. Um, is I do have a follow up on it. I have okay. some questions. Okay, then we, we'll follow. Okay. We'll follow okay. it up as we go. Give us your closer. Um, okay. But but the, uh, the 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 great take is that no one knows how the fuck to do a communism. Um, the same way no one knows how to how the fuck to do a gender, but. Oops, all my gender. You know, I keep doing it anyway, right? <laughs> That's really good. I um, like that. You know, and you know, recently at the, uh, um, recently, um, Angela Davis was sort of quoted saying that like, um, gender abolition and sort of the, the works of, of um, Marxist feminists um, and, and trans people towards gender abolition um, is. Well, the work of Marxist feminists and the embodied work of trans people. Um, she didn't say all these words. I'm, I'm putting some right. of these words in her mouth. But basically that, yeah, the, the, the work, the embodied work of trans people towards gender abolition um, should be a model for how we think about um, like police and prison abolition and uh, to say that we should abolish um I, I guess this is sort of the Hegelian sort of um alphab um right? The, the um abolition by um transcendence, right? Um and and um so in that line, um so Angela Davis uh, says to sort of follow that model towards, follow, follow that model with, with gender, with trans people towards like thinking, okay, how can we embody prison abolition right. in, a, in a comparable way? Um, and that's of course the point where um, it stops being an identity and starts being something that a collective of people have to embody through action simultaneously. Um, and that's sort of the, the, the question of communism, right? Of, of, of communists, um, of, of organization and, and organizational strategy. Right. That makes sense. Um, so... What about now? Are you a member of any groups? Uh, yes, right. Um, to actually finish uh, narrativizing that, um, I am a member of... I'm, I recently joined... For a while after I moved to New York, um, you know, being a grad student, um, I just didn't have time to think about organizing, and I was too mentally ill to think about organizing, and um, have recently joined an organization. I've joined Red Bloom Communist Collective. Um, alongside some longtime friends and comrades of mine, like my esteemed interviewer, um, and and if I I there is of course parts where I'm still not sure if I'm like actually ready to be organizing, um. As far as, you know, some of the anxieties that prevented me for a while, mm -hmm. um, things like executive function, uh, well, that, that being a big one, executive function and anxiety about communication and 
um, anxieties about whether I'm you know capable of um, making commitments and and um, fulfilling obligations. Um, things that I've I've really struggled with my whole life. Um, and um, oh, yeah, but 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 I'm very excited to be a member of, of Red Bloom. Um, you know, part of why I I chose this organization specifically is that um, you know it's this very sort of explicitly programmatically Marxist feminist organization. Um, so I don't have to worry the same way about shitty dudes mm -hmm. in it. Um, and, and then of course I was, I've been galvanized, you know, at the time of speaking in 2020, it's been just over a month since protests started, um, following the death of, um, George Floyd and, um, a lot of my, my galvanization towards joining an organization was, um, sort of from praxis of going to things and trying to think as hard as I possibly can about what was happening there, right? And just try of what you know, what are the actual dynamics there? What are the, you know, because this is, um, this is turned out to be such a, a larger scale thing that even past Black Lives Matter moments, um, you know, in, in a way that's very, very substantially different, in a way that police abolition became a normal thing to talk about overnight. Um, and... It sort of seems like we should be trying to do some shit right now. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, <laughs> it seems like the time to do shit as a yeah. communist, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, the things I've been saying this whole time are suddenly normal. What am I going to do? Right. Like, stay in bed? Like, right? It's like, and, and going to things and, and trying to take good notes and then having those, uh, you know, posting on Facebook about it um, and having those notes be very well received. Um, they were really good, for one thing. Uh, thank you. Um... And, um, and so, so then writing more about things, um, and that sort of being sort of a galvanizing, honestly, even the act of writing about things, because for a while I, you know, I mm -hmm. thought all of my thoughts, um, and I had a very well fleshed out, coherent theoretical system, mm -hmm. um, but I, I wrote about it so little, yeah. um, and... Um, and sort of developing confidence writing about it and sort of being a theoretical agent um, makes it feel more approachable for me to be involved with a with an organization. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm, it sort of goes beyond being an armchair thinker mm -hmm towards being an armchair writer, which is, is better. There's a substantial difference. Well, yeah, one of them is going to definitely have more impact on other, on other people. Yeah, sure. yeah, and it's sort of, then it's feeling good about, it's feeling, it's feeling comfortable having an impact on people. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I wouldn't be so, um, presumptuous as to, I wouldn't be so bold as to presume, um, 
that I'm going to have that much impact on anybody at any point in time, but um, I'm, I've am i recently reached a point where I am not scared of having impact on people. That's a really good thing to say. Um, and particularly, I'm not scared of having an impact on people I don't know. Because I feel like for a while, I, you know, within my, within my spaces, um, and subcultures, I was able to, and with people I was close to, I was, um, able to have a lot of impact through my, my talking and thinking about all mm-hmm. this theoretical stuff, but then, um, the, the real difference is, is being comfortable having an impact on people outside my orbit, mm-hmm. right? Having an impact on people I know, and then having an impact... I, it's, it's really scary to think about having an impact on someone you might never meet. Why? What's scary about that? Because it's outside of your control. Because it's outside of your control. Because as soon as it's someone you can't interact with, uh, or someone you don't interact with, then if you've written something imprecisely mm-hmm. and they get the wrong idea about it, they, they misunderstand it, then they could come, um, they could be impacted. They could be so impacted, um... in a way that doesn't align with your view of it, right? Mm-hmm. But what if it's in a better way? What if they improve on my ideas? See, that is so something, like, that is so, so something why my, um, my, my old therapist would say to me is, like, I, I would talk about these anxieties of, like, um being my my broad sort of speaking anxieties about being misinterpreted by the world um and the answer would be like what if but what if they improve on it though what if what if or what if you're misinterpreted for good um and i don't have a good answer to it um (laughs) right because because that's the only possible answer is yeah that would be pretty good um <laughs> right and that's the answer that leads yeah. you to be more comfortable putting right. stuff into the world right um putting stuff into the world and letting it get outside of your hands mm-hmm. um and so so it is it is like this ego thing of it right because it's um, the author is not dead until there's an author. Right. But it's also, it's also sort of scrupulosity about, like, because on the one hand, you, you don't want to be over-egotistical and think you'll, who am I to say I'll ever have an impact on, per, on a person? Okay, well, that's fair enough, but, like, who's to say you haven't already? Like, that's another form of, you know, and, like, yes, you don't want to, you like, if somebody were to take some something that you have said or done 
and like turn it in a bad way. You you are not fully responsible for that. Just as you would not be fully responsible for whatever improvements anybody else makes on what you have to say. It's very hard to get over control of this like I agree. is your limited responsibility but also that you have some. You know what I mean? Like I think we always tend to kinda of, like push outward to another direction. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, sure. And and I, I agree completely, right? And so that of course is like how I talk myself into writing and um and and speaking, I think we were talking off the recording, or maybe it's in there, and you're about to hear this for the second time. Um, we were talking um, about um, public speaking, um, and like how I learned to be good. And Kate, Kate was saying that that musical performance um, helped them become a better public speaker. And for me, it's like musical performance that made me a worse public speaker, um, because I I couldn't stop thinking about all the ways that public speaking was different from it, um, yeah. and so then I got stuck in the sort of the anxiety of those differences. And what actually made me a good public speaker um, is being a teacher, being a music teacher, and um, then having all these difficult high level music theory concepts that. I might have to explain in a practicable way to a 10-year-old in 30 minutes. Um, and, to, and to do so, um, you know, when I was first becoming a teacher, there, I had so much anxiety of even the ways that, um, yeah, this is um, a much more mundane anxiety than perhaps some of these other things, but what if I teach this person music theory fundamentals wrong, and ten years from now they go to music school, and it's harder for them because they learned things wrong the first time, which is, like, pretty mundane in the scheme of things, but it's something I really freaked myself out about when I started teaching, um, and that I was only able to <coughs> overcome that anxiety by just getting really good at explaining the concepts right the first time. Right. Um, There's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. There's definitely a lot to be said for not fucking it up, that's for sure. Like, There's a I'm lot to be said for, like, that. try as hard as you can to not fuck it up. Then, I mean, there's a lot to, this, this goes back to what we were saying about, um, you know, learning jazz on the job. Um... <laughs> And, and then later on, I, I would go and I, I learned to play jazz on the job before I ever really listened to jazz. And then later on, I, I started listening to jazz. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I get it now, in a way that I didn't before. Um, and, and so then, there's a lot to be said for working really, really, really hard To not fuck up doing things. Mm -hmm. And then you can start getting good at them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's fair. I think that's fair. I mean, it's fucking being a woman, right? Or being whatever, uh, for uh, the transits of it, being whatever gender mm -hmm. um, you decide um, fits best, right? Um, you... Sort of the pro the. If there is sort of a singular act of transitioning, 
that act is the commitment to trying not to fuck up being that gender. Mm. And then once that's out of the way, you can start actually trying to get good at it. <laughs> I think that's probably that's probably a good point. I wonder if there's something like that for communism. What do you need tonight? Yeah, okay. But it's bedtime, you know? Yeah. Okay. It's okay, I drink is there, seltzer. Is there any left in there? What? Is there any left in that seltzer? I, I constantly drink seltzer past my bedtime. Pretty much the same. But, you know. I, I drink seltzer all day. Drink seltzer all day? Yes. I, I don't drink wine. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's like the next YouTube Zoomer hit. I drink seltzer all day. <laughs> TikTok. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, oh my god, wait. When did she start to TikTok? <laughs> I haven't let her start social media because I'm a responsible adult, but she really wants to. <laughs> anyway, um, okay, well, I guess we'll call it a wrap. This was quite a long interview. Yeah, this, I, I, I know this is like so much longer than a lot of these others. Um, <laughs> dear listener, um, dear listener, if you are still here, or dear reader, if you are reading the transcription <laughs> of this, if you are still here, um, I commend you. I can't imagine caring that much about what I have to say, but <laughs> I appreciate nonetheless that you do. <laughs> um, um, I hope you've had a, you've had as wonderful a time, um, relating to this crystallization of me at this point in time, um, on this day in, uh, 2020, I hope you have as much of a wonderful experience relating to me, or I hope you have had as much of a wonderful experience relating to me as I have had, um, relating to you with my esteemed interviewer, Kate, as a surrogate for that relation. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Sandy, and um, we appreciate you contributing to this historical archive of transness and in our case, trans communism in New York in 2020. Bye, everybody.